please hit like, share, and subscribe. Now enjoy the Practical Guitarist Podcast. We have some interesting stuff to talk about tonight that it's going to be really boring and probably has already been covered by everybody else until you're blue in the face. But um, yeah, so if you're new to this show and you like what you're hearing, please, by all means, uh, hit the like, subscribe, follow, whatever the hell social media platform you're viewing this crap on uh, so that you can come back. And uh, I promise we'll have good episodes every once in a while we have a good one. Uh, I'm pleased to announce that we had the best month that this show has ever had last month, um, which yeah. given uh, the status of the last, I would say, almost year and where our ratings were. Um, yeah, that's really exciting. So uh, thank you for everybody who listened. And uh, if you're enjoying the show, uh, we appreciate your fanatical support of the garbage that we put out. Uh, yes. <laughs> I I was going to have a garbage can to hold up, but um, anyway, so, um, you know, we got a Facebook group. People have been asking, like, you make sure you put the the details for the Facebook group in the comments below. It's easy. It's Facebook.com. Search for the Practical Guitarist Facebook group. You'll find it. It's there. Um, And uh, ask to join. Fill out the questions. Tell them your favorite host is me. And uh, we'll be all good. So. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sorry jim you know, i, I got to give myself I, all the advantages not, <laughs> i want you to, I, I want you people to know believe it or not we do review every single person that jo- that joins the group we it's, so, it's, it's exclusive we look at them and we 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 through i mean there's definitely some people who are like no we get to laugh sometimes <laughs> there is absolutely not <laughs> <sighs> so. and i promise i'm not mean in person i may i may seem mean on the show but that's right. I, I, have a, is. I have a not so good heart, but you know, anyway, moving on. Um, so right along. yeah, let's, let's talk about what's new for this week. Uh, well, I get the, uh, led going here. Yeah. All right, cool. So we need to get some foot switches. So I, when I turn these leds on, they, uh, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. we get the click, you, you know, get the thing. Maybe you could get, uh, get Vadavi to, to, uh, program you some stuff. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, well, you know what? I have, um, I have this as a remote controller, but I don't even have it on most of the time. So I've just been doing it manually. I think the last couple episodes, and it's fine. You guys can handle the LED being on at the same time for a minute. Um, it, it, you know, I, I don't, have a, I don't have a switching system for the show, so it is what it is, yeah, right? It's true. Um, dude, I got a lot of what's new. So I sold my uh, Mason Mini Recto Cab. Mm-hmm. Uh, went out the door. I actually made money on it which is wild because I bought that cab new. Um, And I just had to wait long enough. And somebody was like, I want that one. And I was like, more power to you. And so it's out the door. So I I had that listed for like two months. I know it came up on the show a couple times, three months or whatever. So I was really excited to see that it finally found a good home. And um, it it wound up um, giving me a significant amount of money. 
which for about two days, I was like, what am I going to do with this money? But I sort of knew where this money was going to go. Uh, right. I don't have my board sitting behind me. It's actually in a bag. There's another board over here that's that's got small stuff on it. But um, the the board, I, I have my regular board. I had bought a new power supply a while back. We finally got that on there. I ripped all the pedals that were off my board, as good as it sounded. And I used it in rehearsal last week, and it sounded great. And I, I like... I actually got emotional about ripping it apart because I was like, this is the best sounding board I've ever had. What are you doing? You moron. Um, so what I did is I put my HX stomp on it. I put, um, I ordered, this is just a box and it's a plain box. So I'm sorry. Um, but I ordered the Morningstar MC3. Oh, nice. Yeah. Or MC6, not MC3. No, three buttons, are not, three, three buttons are not enough. I need six. Um, and then uh, some MIDI cables from One Control, which again, these are just the boxes. They come in; mm -hmm. they're these little tiny things. And um, I ordered. Just like it was something else. Um, there was there was other stuff that was ordered. I needed a couple of other cables to make things work. Um, so right now, the the way that my signal path is going is like I have. Um, I go into the wah, and then that goes into the HX stomp. And then I use loop one of the HX stomp to go through a Univibe, um, which is the um, it's the fancy one. I don't remember the name of it. <laughs> I just use it. I don't even care. It sounds good, so I don't care. There's that. There's um, I go into the Boss FZ 2W, um, which is yep. new. That We're getting there. That was another new thing that happened, which I did not anticipate happening. And then we go into the to the uh, JHS three series distortion, which is my rat, my current rat, and then that yep. is going out into um, my uh, Golden Boy from uh, Jackson <coughs> Audio, ah, okay. and then I'm using MIDI from that back into the MC six, and I'm actually using the MC six to control the HX stomp. So in the HX, so in, inside the MC six, what I'm doing is like I have the three snapshots set up on it. And I'm using the three buttons that are assignable on the HX stomp for various things within the patches. And then I'm just yep. using the morning start to bank up and bank down to change patches um, yep. to trigger the um, golden boy on or off, changing the drive level in the golden boy, changing whether or not the boost is enabled, changing the boost mode for certain sounds. Yep. And then I'm yep. also um, using you know, momentary stuff inside the HX stomp to get things accomplished. And actually like, I'm really happy with the amount of programmability and the variety of sounds that I have at my fingertips. Yeah. But I, but I spent a good four hours programming tones this morning and it was like, I only got like three done. Um, and I, I know it's spent another two hours doing two more and it's, it's a lot of work. And I know that these aren't finished. Like, I'm going to go back and tweak these over and over and over. And it dawned yep. on me today. I was like, well, how would you do that at a rehearsal? Because you can't really change the MIDI functionality um, without a computer. So <laughs> yep. I'm actually going to be bringing a laptop to rehearsals. I'm going to get a um, – we, we do employee giveaways for old laptops. And I, I just need something that's got a web browser on it for the Morningstar controller because it's really cool. They use a PWA to do all of your editing oh, nice. on the Morningstar. So basically any PC, it doesn't matter what software it's running. As um, long as it's running a, a, a browser that you can you can load up. And then I can run HX Edit on it and I can use that to tweak everything <laughs> on the fly. You can use the- uh, I just need two uh, USB ports. 
Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but you can have two USBs on a, um, what are those things called, a Chromebook? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. so, but HX Edit won't run on a Chromebook. Okay. That's so right. I would still that's need right. to have that's HX right. Edit, which is fine, because I, I get, okay. I'll get a free Windows laptop from work, and then oh, yeah, I'll have yeah. two USB cables running out to my unit, and away I, I go. I keep forgetting I have the ability to do that. I really do. I, I should do that once in a while. The, the government has a similar thing when they chicken i mean it, they sell them at, at when i say great i'm like 25 30 bucks yeah it's, they've got to take something for it so they can tell the taxpayers they sold it mm -hmm. right right but but in all honesty just like what you're doing these are like dell you know last yeah. 6400s yeah. or whatever from like eight yeah, years the, ago the ones i used to like to call dell bad attitudes yeah um, <laughs> the latitude machines that <laughs> But um, when they do, because the government will do a complete sweep. So when they buy um, desktops or laptops, they buy everything new. Matter of fact, a couple of years ago, this might have been three or four years ago now, but it's been a while. But um, they did a whole sweep where nobody has a desktop anymore. We all got laptops. Mm -hmm. Even if all you ever used it for was a desktop, which is dumb because laptops aren't built to be desktops. And then the batteries go bad because they don't actually right, charge a right. discharge. It's it's dumb except from the perspective of like when you have to dole out those resources to other people, et cetera. And right. of course, last it's easier to have a contract for one thing, for maintenance, for everything. And last year we why. and last year we discovered that you might actually end up working from home even if you do work in an office. So. And that's what happened. Thank goodness they did what they did, to be honest with you. They weren't forward-thinking with it. Take my word for it. It's the United States government. They did not think forward. Mm -hmm. I've been working for the government since 1983, folks. Don't tell me. I don't care what branch you work for. Don't tell me you actually think ahead. It's bullshit. <laughs> because the next person that comes in always I know how to do it better than the last guy. He was always wrong. Uh, it's no different in the private sector. <laughs> oh, <I know. laughs> let's be real. Let's be real. The private Any bureaucracy is, the same is like that. If it's and, if it's bigger than two people, it's gonna be a So problem. So just to just to like kinda like put a pin on the, the Morningstar thing. Um yep. I am both excited by what I've got. Yep. But also like very daunted because there's a lot of stuff that's got to go on. There's a lot of moving pieces. And I don't even yeah. buy – I didn't even buy the whole system. I had this whole panic attack of whether I was going to get an ES5 and yeah, get it all, the... all included or if yeah. I was going to go compartmentalized. And I think I made the right decision um, yeah. because what, number one was space thing because if I, I don't know if I yeah. told you this. I had this conniption because I realized like if I did this, I was going to have to go up to a bigger board and I was going to have all these empty spaces. Yep. So I was like, I really don't want to go up in board size. And uh, I made the decision to stick with my original idea. The ML5, I did not buy yet. Um, I am going to buy one. It's just a matter of time. Um, yep. I, I didn't buy it because I was like, well, let's see how we get on with the Morningstar controller. If I decide I don't like this and I have to return it or, you know, resell yep. it, then at least yep. I'll know, you know, at least I know where things will be, right? Um, and long term, yeah, like I could probably see myself going over to the to the uh, the boss series stuff again. But here's the deal: you, no no PC editor there. I mean, not from boss directly, as far as I know. Right, um, right, there right. wasn't when I had one. So if you have an ES controller, you're doing all that crap on the floor, which is kind of crappy. Um, yeah. They're making the assumption that you're just going to be turning stuff on or off, and you might be adjusting right. the order every once in a while. Uh, <laughs> That's it's, exactly. 
Yeah. And a and lot of things do that. I sort of oh. wish that Boss didn't didn't ever touch software anyway. They they, they do really bad software implementations over there. Um, yep. If you've ever used Tone Studio, it is the biggest garbage like piece of software I've ever dealt with. It just doesn't make sense. There are, now, but, and I'm not talking about the Katana. They did a decent job right. with the Katana software. The Katana one, they did a good job with. Well, maybe they farmed that out. But I don't know. But the but like the RC series stuff, their their Tune Studio for like loading and loops and shit, it's yep. awful. Um, and uh, I would like I would caution anybody if you think that you're going to use that plugin software from them for anything, just forget it. Um, right. But they uh, so that so that's you know that's that stuff. I do want to talk about the FC2W, which is the uh, the Waza fuzz. So everybody was like, you know, when are they going to come out with a with a Waza based fuzz that they're going to offer in the regular lineup because the tone bender was such a big deal. Did you? Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I ordered one. Yeah, I pre-ordered one, and um, it was supposed to come in like they told me like December, wink, wink, because they knew it wasn't going to come out in December, but it did, and I actually received one of the first units in the country. Because when nice. I got mine, there were only a handful of people online talking about them, like two yep. or three people. And I got to be honest, um, I was expecting this to be sort of like a middle of the road box. And it is, uh, l- let's put it this way. Um, I took the sun face off of my board and I put the FC2W on. Wow. And uh, for humbuckers. And I know how much that thing it. just it just destroys humbuckers like it it, it has the, it now does you got the, me one. it does the right stuff. OK, and, it, and so that my only my only com- comment was that a lot of people were saying this is going to be a box that um, plays well with buffers. And while they're not wrong, my idea of playing well with buffers is that it would have a buffer built in so that it wouldn't really matter um, that the input buffer would handle it. Um, they didn't do that. Okay. So it, it, you, you still have like the effect of a buffer making your signal very bright, um, going into the, going into the fuzz and, and like goosing the gain level to all hell. But, um, what I can report is that it sounds good with a buffer too. You just got to turn the game down. Um, and I actually really, really like this pedal with both with and without buffers. So it's just two flavors of the yeah. same box. And then the two modes, the vintage mode sounds great. The I'm using the modern one um, just because I, I like to have my fuzz like a little out of control. And then I roll back on the volume to sort of get a hold of it. I've been, I've been lo- looking for the right fuzz for William Riker. So. Yeah. Check it out. Um, I, you'll probably be able I've, to get them in the store. And because yeah, uh, they're not like they're not going to be hard to find. No, um, no. These are going to be made in mass. And I took it apart. So like, all right, I'm going to be real with you. I don't, I mean, I've built pedals. I don't know a ton about what's going on in the guts, but I counted like a bunch of what looked like transistors in there with the little top hats on them for the for the um, uh, for uh, heat sinks. Right. And there was yep. like. I want to say like seven or eight. Mm-hmm. So most fuzzes have like three transistors. I have no idea what they're doing inside this pedal, but it is voodoo magic and I'm fine with that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I would encourage anybody who's looking for a fuzz to check it out. It's, it's, it's worth the ride. Um, 
I, well, you I know where I am. Don't I've got regret the, it. Uh, I've got I've got the one you gave me. Right, which is a uh, op and big muff. Yep. And uh, I've got um, the JHS, um, the one that's got a whole bunch of them on it. Oh yeah, yeah, the the, the muffletta. And uh, I think that's the only muffs I have now, or um, uh, fuzzes I have now, because um, I sold the the Keeley Dark Side. Right, which is a big muff inside. Which was a big muff, for, for lack so, of a better term. Yeah, it, and the muffaletta has everything that the or the Morning Star. Sorry, yeah, the muff the muffaletta. The muffaletta you have the Morning Star. So I'm, I'm getting the muffaletta has everything that the Dark Side had anyway, as far as that goes. And I had the the other part of the the um, Keeley dark side. There's nothing wrong with the dark side if that's you know if that's your thing. It's just <clears throat> I didn't need it anymore because I had stuff. So what was the point of keeping it? So, and um, I'm really still enjoying the rat spain because I thought about getting that new um, uh, rat from uh, JHS because yeah. I heard a lot of good stuff about it. I'm um, gonna I, I want to talk about the new rat from JHS. And I want to talk about yeah. that before we go on to Orange Drink. Um, and I'll actually, in terms of the FC uh, 2W, if you're thinking about like buying one, I want to I want to explain what the voicing is. It's sort of in between a tone bender and a fuzz face and a and a muff. Like it's a very it occupies a lot of territory. Yep. I don't think it gets as refined as a muff does. Where like muffs are pretty much they're they're pretty in control fuzz unless you're getting like a really wild Russian one. Um, whereas yep. the, um, uh, you know, the fuzz face is kind of like a broken sounding thing. And the tone bender is also kind of a broken sounding thing. This is right. like somewhere between. So I don't, I, you might like this. You might not. It just depends on what you're looking for. Right. Um, and what you're, and it's going to greatly change the sound of it. What's in your, what's already like in the chain. I know a lot of people put fuzz up front and if you do that, you should be fine. The only reason I haven't pulled the trigger on that, and believe me, it still crossed my mind, is is two two big reasons. One, I'm kind of saving up this year so that I can put together that white, um, white and black board, that black and white. Yeah. The, okay. And my my bet is they release two or three more pedals this, next year. Yeah, they so just did. Really, they just uh, dropped three more. JHS. They, they dropped three more. There's there's ten pedals total. Yeah. Or eleven. So, so, so the so the rat, you're talking about the the the. Rat. I didn't really comment on that, and I I, I did kind of want yeah. to. You yeah. know, I I talked to people who are rat but, lovers, yeah. and they're like, "Why the hell did you put like nine rats in a box? They're all basically the same." Um, yeah, I mean, I I know that what what he's doing is kind of catering to the to the tone junkies, the people that are worried that about, and it's not even that they're worried about one percent. A lot of those pedals, the sound, the same sounds are in them. You just have to know where to right. set the knobs differently. And and that's the thing though. There's no reason for me to pull the trigger on that rat. This is the biggest reason. I like the Wampler rat Spain. Mm-hmm. Why 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 would I go get another rat? I mean, I... not again. There's nothing wrong. I, I'm I'm 100 sure that JHS's rat is great. Maybe better than a rat Spain in some ways. But I don't really have anything driving me to to run away from the rat Spain. Right now, the Tumnus and the rat Spain are my two favorite pedals on my board. I don't want to get into this one too much, but the uh, the new Wampler, um, uh, the, the, their their new Blaze Blues Breaker for what it's called. Uh, oh yeah, the Pantheon, the dual, the dual Pantheon. 
Um, there's some stuff I like there. I mean, I'm a blues breaker guy, so I'm going to try it, but I'm looking at the pedal and I've just kind of gone, guys, your clips don't sound good. Um, I know. Isn't that weird? I have to imagine this pedal sounds better in person than it does in clips, but there's something up with the EQ on that thing. And I think it's the active bass control. That's what I, that's what I've like rationalized is because you put that active bass control in there. Nobody's setting the bass at neutral at noon. Cause I don't think that's actually neutral on that pedal. I think neutral is at like nine o'clock. Um, and he's, you know, he's an EQ guy. Like he really likes his wild EQ. I have not been a fan of his EQ. Um, so it is what it is. Like, I just don't think, um, I think he gets really scientific about it and he's using, you know, backs and all circuits and he's doing, you know, uh, calculations as to what frequency ranges are being adjusted. And I do it by ear, man. Like, I, I don't care if it's, you know, if you're cutting off at 750 Hertz or, you know, just, just fix it. Like, make it sound good. Like, that's all I yeah, care but he about. Needs, he needs it to cut off at 749,552. Right. Uh, right. Because that's where the magic, to- that's where the magic tone and unicorns live. Um, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> all so right. I got it. Let's, so, let's talk about my new piece before we yeah, move yeah, yeah. to the orange piece. So here he is. So this is the... Um, the new Bigsby pedal. I got a chance to plug it in. I am doing a video. I'm cleaning up this shithole right now. <laughs> <laughs> I call an office. You do not want to know what it looks like in here. It's a latrine. But, um, yeah, latrine. That's right. You have an unfortunate name. Um, what was it before? Shithouse. <laughs> um, so one of the things, we're going to talk about this later. because This is going to be a whole section that, that uh, you're going to run down this rabbit hole. It's got MIDI. Yeah. Um, so, and what I like, I mean, it's it's a 300 millivolt, which or milliamp, which a lot of these people, that's that's what they do, the 300 milliamp uh, digital pedal. So this is digital. Yeah, it's probably and, an FRV one or FVR one or FRV one that that chip that I'm they're sure. putting in everything. So you can see there's depth rate and uh, um, uh, oh. Depth rate blend, which I love. So you can blend in your original signal and you can get the thing. And each one of these does a secondary thing. There's a red. So I can go I go up to a full active up. I can go up to a full active down. It's like a whammy is, pedal, it's, right? It's essentially a whammy pedal. But I want to get into where, and I'm not saying it's better or worse than a whammy pedal because it's quite expensive. But then again, the high-end whammy pedal is close to this price. <clears throat> but I want to, I want to talk a little bit about how I figured out it works. Because it was like, how the f- does this thing work? Um, uh, it's it's probably a lot more simple than I was thinking it would be. But um, you've got all this stuff, and you can you can do ten presets with the MIDI, so you can choose up to ten presets. Yeah. Um, and you can also use this as an expression pedal, and you can use an expression pedal at the same time as you do this. So you can actually make this. I, I plugged oh, it into yeah. my. Uh, my Kemper and used it as a wah while it was also. <laughs> okay. Well then, <laughs> thank you, Steve. I mean, a completely useless use of this thing. I believe he actually did it. that on a tune. But um, um, I can add, you know, change things. Um, but anyway, so the way this works, it's kind of cool. This is a, um, obviously a Bigsby um, arm. It's it's locked into place. There's some locking mechanisms. This doesn't do dick. 
So this tension arm right here mm. tensions the spring, right? Right. Doesn't do anything. Just pulls the spring up and down. That's just to bring your pedal back to zero, right? Right, correct. Really all it's doing is reading where this guy Yeah, there's a pot. Yeah. Is along here. Uh -huh. So somewhere on one side or the other, they're reading where the where this is turning. Right. This this piece. Or and then Yeah, doing the doing the work. This is a super high end digital pedal that looks very analog. These guys, they're known for their wacky stuff. This is a wacky pedal. I don't think that they make bad stuff at all, but I, I, I have one thing that's, that makes me think this is a gimmick. And, okay, uh, you know, me, yeah, go ahead. Let me finish. So the depth, I was like, okay, I got to tune it to, because I was like, okay, I want to get about one um, to a full, you know, press down. I want to get um, a one step, like I was going down Mm -hmm. A full step, right? I don't want it to go an octave. I don't want a step and a half. I just want a step. This thing is super easy to tune. I pretty much just clicked it a couple, went, and I was like, E, D, E, D, right there on the tuner. It was yeah. it was perfect. And um, uh, the rate thing was kind of cool, but kind of weird. So no matter how fast you step on it, you could change the rate, how how it moves. Um, the blend was useful, but when you do one step, you know that that creates a bit of a. It's just going to be out of around. yeah. It's going to be out of pitch and, which, which is kind of which a cool kind of effect. Sounds, yeah, which kind of sounds cool. And then uh, you can, like I said, you can lock this. That's the other thing. So let's say you're like, oh man, I got to put it in my bag, and it's going to get banked around, and these things are going to get moved. You can you can lock it as well. So you've got this little button you hold, and then you push this button and it locks it. Cool. And then of course my name is on it. Yep. So, I don't know if you guys can see that. Nah, probably not. But it's I've probably seen not. it. Who cares? There's a picture you've in the group. Join the, the Facebook, Facebook group. It's in the Facebook group. Join the <laughs> Facebook group for for that. But anyway, for a full uh, a full review, check it out. I'll be I'll be doing uh, doing a full review. I've not opened it up yet, but there's these screws. What I'm hoping is these things aren't like magical little things and they're just um whatever so all right because i might flip this over so my name is on the inside you're right okay so uh here's my only thing that i i've, I've wanted to know about this pedal real bigsby's go up and down yes it goes up and down so how does it go up so what you do yeah that's that that thank you for asking that i forgot to mention it so when you go up you just put your toe right here okay and you push and it literally, I'll, I'll lift it. It literally, it doesn't do a lot. It compresses the spring. And it's right? hard. I mean, this guy. But that's, this, that's true of real Bigsby's. Like, if you've ever used a real one, it's harder to go up than it is to go down for sure. Yeah. But it does it does do the up. And it does do the up as if, now, I don't have a real Bigsby to, to do 100%. But let's just say that it's very convincing. Yeah. Yeah. Convincing. All right. Well, that's good to hear. Um Let's kill the what's new. We've been we've been talking about what's new for too long, so let's go on to the um, the next segment here. All right, so we're gonna talk about the um, uh, what the hell is the name of that pedal? We it's a K line orange, orange um, burst, orange burst. So you had yours, you played with it. Yeah, we both took one apart. Yeah, we, we looked at it, and um, oddly, yours bo the board inside yours was a different color than mine. Is that um, weird? If I can remember too, there's gonna be some screenshots here. Over on this side of the screen, where the uh, the orange burst will be opened up, so that you can see how well constructed it is. 
Um, so one of the things that came up in our conversation about this pedal, of course, is it's a clone of a BB preamp. Yeah. Um, but like we were talking about the cost of this, like the actual raw parts cost. This pedal was 25 bucks. Okay. And I think Jim got it. Yeah. Jim and I both got it a deal for like $20. Okay? Yeah. 20, 1999 plus. I paid $21 and 26 cents with tax for this thing. Yeah. Something like that. 21, 26 or 21. It was, it was this right here. I'm going to tell you folks, first, first thing I'm going to say before we go do a deep dive, 20 bucks, do it. Yes. I'm just going to give you the, the TLDR. Do it. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I concur. Um, what I was expecting was <laughs> a surface mount overdrive that paled in comparison to the BB preamp. If you're familiar with the J with not the JHS crayon, but the EHX crayon, which is a, right. which is a copy of the BB preamp. BB preamp. It sucks. Okay. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to try to like beat around the bush and tell you it's the same thing. It's not. Um, they they made too many compromises in the circuit for it to yep. sound good. Does yep. this sound like my old red box BB preamp that of I course. bought last year? No. How close is it? I would say it's probably ninety five percent of the way there, and maybe maybe ninety seven. Like it's really damn close. And and quite honestly, like if you were on stage, I don't know that you could tell the difference. I don't know that anybody in the audience yeah. can tell the difference. And if you're saying. in a studio setting, yeah, I'd really rather have yeah. the BB preamp. But if you don't tell anybody, they probably wouldn't even know. I mean, it's I got, that close. <clears throat> I want to add one more thing. So for $20, folks, usually for $20, you get a plastic piece of crap, right? And we'll talk more about the construction. But I want to say something that was added, and I, I'm sure it was in yours if it was in mine. Yeah. They put this in here in case you want to use a battery. This is... This is a couple of bucks if you buy anybody else's that doesn't yeah. have a battery. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And number and, two. And most of the time, they're the wrong. They're flipped for a fuzz pedal. So. Yep. And number two, it comes with the little feet. You yeah. don't have to have the feet on it. But they're here on a little 3M sticky in mm -hmm. case you want it. And, mm -hmm. and that's all I'm saying. For $20, get it. All right. Keep going. So. Sorry. Um. Jim, I got to ask, now that you've owned a BB preamp clone, what do you think of the sound of a BB preamp? I like it. Okay. At first, I you like were kind it. of on the fence about it. You were like, I don't know how I feel about the sound of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's one of those pedals that I can see being always on. I can I can see it, like, in most settings. It's a high-gain overdrive, for sure. Yep. It is not yep. a – it's not a tube screamer, which is a low-mid-gain. Right. Um, it, is, it is loud. It is in charge. It has active EQ, so you can do a lot with the EQ. Um, yep. It 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 fits with a lot of amps. I like my BB preamp a lot, and I like the K-Line Orange Burst almost as much. And I was shocked. I I don't I don't know that I'm going to keep mine. I, I, we've been talking about giving away to show listener, and we may do, we may yep. still do that. But um, it because they're twenty dollars. I mean, it's ridiculous how cheap they are. Um, yep. This is a really well-kept secret, this pedal, the CP18. That's the, the uh, model designation for this. I'm looking at the box. It's sitting in front of me. Um, and quite honestly, like, I want to, I, I, you know, we, we, we rag on Chinese companies and their, and their uh, products quite a bit. 
every once in a while, and I think we've made this clear on the show, every once in a while we find something that's like actually okay. I mean, you know, that th this is good. Um, I suspect there's probably a higher rate of failure in these if you buy, you know, them in bulk. You, you know, there might be three that get tossed in the garbage per crate. But the reality is they're well made. Um, it's not surface mount. It's it's um, individual components, like regular size individual components. Yep. Um, the foot switch, it's it's cheaper. It's a Chinese equivalent to a triple pull double throw, uh, but it's probably replaceable with an American equivalent part. Yep. The um, uh, the jacks look a little bit cheaper than what you would get on any boutique pedal manufacturer switchcraft jacks. Um, the nine volt plug, uh, they actually there's two um, two spots in the board where you can actually add a nine volt battery cable inside the pedal. It does not come yep. with one, but if you want one, and there's actually space for a nine volt battery in the pedal. Um, so right. they clearly just left that out to, for for cost. Um, Probably one for cost and two because they didn't want to make they didn't want people complaining about the fact you ought to go and screw it to get to the. Thing. Yeah, yeah. I Which, can see that being a that's you know the, every MXR cable is or every MXR pedal is like that. That's right. So yep. And and quite frankly, and um, that's one less thing they have to worry about. I think breaking. my wamplers too. My wamplers, you had to unscrew them to get the battery out. And that's the thing; they always came with a battery in them. I'm like, oh, now I got to take the battery out. It's one less. I don't want it bad. But it's one less thing they have to QC, Jim. So that's right. If they don't install one, they don't have that's to worry right. about people calling and be like, "I want a different one because this one doesn't have a battery jack that works." And okay. oh, you gave me a battery, but it doesn't work. It died. Right. That type of thing. Right. So, um, which is fine. A uh, couple things that I didn't like. I, I, you know. Um, I always wish like if clone companies were going to put together a pedal like this, that they would actually improve. Um, one of the things I'd like to see them do is put the jacks on the top. And I know that's a personal preference thing. Like a lot of people don't like that, but I, I would yeah. like them to put the jacks on the top because I right. think that's one of the things, like even when I look at um, TC electronics and all these different companies, like they're starting to put jacks on top more and more doing top and mounts. like the Zeus and their, and their new rat, I forget what they're calling it has the jacks on the top. And I think that's a smart move. Um, if you're going to buy pedals today, most people are not wanting to cart around giant boards. So you either want everything on the side or you want everything on the top because it's going to determine where everything lays out on your board. Um, right. Right. And you can mix and match. I do it. But I mean, like it's, if you have everything together. So I'm not actually a big fan of having everything on the top, like sit right next to each other touching because then the damn foot switches are too close. Um, but and if you're in a small board situation, like I have that little board that's back there in the corner, um, then I think three of the or three of the four pedals on there can actually touch, if I wanted yeah. to, and I could probably squeeze another pedal on there if I do that. So my, that's, my thing is my big fat feet never never miss. I I yeah well it's I couldn't do that because um, I have problems hitting single foot switches once they're too close together. Uh, that's yep. actually one of my big gripes against the Golden Boy. So in its current application on a MIDI control board, it makes sense. But in a pedal board like that, it doesn't. Um, so I actually, I'm interested. I, I, I want to hear from other people who've had K-Line pedals. And I want to see what else is worth uh, worth checking out from them. Um, yeah, I think I might do another another purchase of theirs. Honestly, I, look at some other giveaway, pedals. I might just buy it. Because I, I got to be honest with you. This guy is... So, folks, if you get it, number one, it's made. It 
I was surprised at how well it's boxed. I was surprised at how well it's made. I was surprised at the packaging. I was surprised what it came with. For 20 something dollars, I was super shocked at how good it is. So I definitely want to do, um, uh, you know, a little thing where I play it. Um, you should probably shoot it out with the real one. Because um, this, um, the it's made of metal, but it, at first I thought, okay, so the painting is going to be It's not, crap. The, oh, the painting is crap, okay? I was just going to say, the, the cons of this pedal, yeah. the paint's crap. Yes, some of the wear parts are going to wear out sooner than others. Uh, yeah. It's $20, who gives a shit? Um, right. And quite frankly, um, I think the benefits far outweigh the negatives, but the, but the paint was crap. It's not, so it's not like a normal metal enclosure. It's right. it, it's like a stamped enclosure almost or, or some other, it's not die cast or maybe this die cast and the other ones are not, are not die cast. I don't know that whatever the, whatever the U S manufacturers are using for their, for how they create the boxes when they buy their Hammond enclosures, you know, um, yep. those Hammond enclosures are made in a specific way. This is not made in the same way. It looks a lot like a Hammond enclosure, but if you put them side by side, they're actually different. Right. So that's, right. That, that's the only thing I was going to, I was going to point out. The construction is a little bit. I think, janky, yeah, but, but you know, and, and again, this comes to that. Do you like relic looking stuff or not? I think once you kick this around a little bit, it's going to look pretty cool. I, uh, <laughs> I, cool. you know what? I took mine completely apart. I removed all the, the, um, knobs and mounting hardware and everything yep, and everything same. seemed pretty solid like it was yep. um i i you know whenever you take something apart if it's crap you don't know if you're gonna be able to put it back together and have it work and yeah, exactly i put mine back together and it worked so there's nothing yeah. like it wasn't like there were bad solder joints or anything going on um right i didn't like that the pots were mounted to the board um not a big fan of that method of construction but even the pedals i build sometimes they're mounted to the board so uh, it's yeah. not that surprisingly good deal. solder joints. Um, yeah, I mean, so the only thing was that the leads were hanging down in there, yeah. and, I, and there's a couple places in mine where it was like the leads were almost touching, and you're kind of gone. You could have clipped that just, you know, just this much smaller. Just a little bit, yeah. So just to compare and contrast, um, the other company I'm really, really excited about lately is Jam Pedals, and they mm -hmm. did a um, they did a thing I think it was back in July where. Um, the guys from um, that pedal show went over to Jam Pedals in Greece yep. and actually walked through their facility and their manufacturing. And I saw them doing something there that I never anticipated that I would actually see a pedal company do in this way. And they had a solder bath and they were actually doing all of their components to a board in a solder bath. Right. And I was kind of like, so if you don't know what a solder bath is, basically just it's like a pool of solder that they dip stuff in. And that's, that's a yep. more... Um, I would say like large scale form of, of manufacturing than you typically see for some of these like small, you know, 25 pedals here and there run manufacturers. So I thought it was really interesting, but, it, but also like it just, this does not, this was not made that way um, because the component leads are too, too long uh, for it to be. Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess they could have made this with a solder bath, um, but it just, they would have had to leave those component leads a little too long when they clipped them off because normally the solder bath, I think the component leads stick all the way through the bottom straight through. And then they just carefully like take it and they may have something over the top of it to hold the components in place. And then they dip it into the solder and then they take it out right. and take and the thing off the top. Out. And yep. then they, it's that all might be. fixed on. So yep. anyway, I thought I they thought were, when I first saw it, I thought they were etching, but I was like, wait a minute, that's a know. solder bath. Like, 
And I knew about it because I had a friend that actually worked on um, equipment for that. So I was like, huh. Oh, that's cool. And it was like really tiny. Um, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Never seen it done that way. Um, rather than in, doing the individual components. But when you see Joel, Joel Corday from Chase Bliss, you know, with 50 pedals lined up and he's literally going down, you know, doing <laughs> doing one component on each one and doing an assembly line like that, that's that's a different method of working for sure. A um, lot more labor going into that. But um, now when you, yeah. So, um, all right, that that's good. So uh, the orange is done, I think. Yeah, um, you want to move on to uh, our uh, reverb policy? Let's talk to Reverb. So I, I found out why you and I were discussing. So David and I had a little discussion about this right before, and I was like, why didn't I get one of those things? It's because I sold my V over a year ago. Right. So my V, when I sold it, didn't come into this new policy. So, folks, what's going to happen, it will depend on your state, and you will— It's already it, happened. I mean, it's not right. what's going to happen. It's already happened. Right. So Reverb has come out and said, hey— Give us your information because we need to send you a 1099R or 1099K. And people, so are, people is, are losing their mind over this. I've seen a couple of yeah. talks and forums. And it's, it's like, what do you mean? You know, and it, and it goes, of course, everybody's laws, every state law is going to be different. Federal law is going to be, you know, the same across board. But here's the deal. Most of the time. So you spent, say you bought um, your guitar. Say I bought that gold top for $2,000 and I sold it for two thousand dollars i don't i don't the i'll get a 1099k for two thousand dollars but then there will be a line item for for your taxes to say and i you know when you fill out that part of the form on your taxes and you'll say but i spent two thousand dollars on it and i spent this much shipping and this much blah 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 so and reverb took this much so i only got this much now because it, it won't be that cut, it, it my, won't be that cut and dry it's going to be wins or losses so right. you'll be expected to provide an accounting for each thing that you have to list all the things that you said but here's the problem i'm not sure your 1099k is going to be itemized yeah and it, it probably won't be um and um, if you're like my state they're not going to care you better fill it out no. or you're going to get audited Right, um, and you're and you're gonna have to fill out all those forms, but don't freak out too much. Just make sure you keep track of how much you spent, how much you spent on uh, other stuff. Because my V, I sold it for twenty five hundred dollars. <throat> okay, and but a lot of that went to shipping. Okay, and reverb fees. I mean, that's a lot of money in reverb fees, and that was before the boost. I think right before they, uh, I think it was right before they boosted to five percent from three percent or whatever um so you well, know you've got that <clears throat> so so here's my issue and uh it's more of a political commentary than it is against reverb itself um reverb is doing what they're being told to do under the law and mm -hmm. and you know people are bitching about reverb because they're not selling on ebay right now ebay is doing this okay as well um right. etsy is doing it uh obviously they own reverb um, and, uh, pretty much every online retailer, in fact, I think even Facebook marketplace is now talking about processing payments and then you'll get a 1099 K from them. Um, I can tell you that Facebook marketplace, if, if we can take just a second, um, they said outright, there's a lot of people that list and it, I guess it depends on the state, but they'll say, I'm actually asking this much, but reverb won't let me or i mean facebook marketplace doesn't want me to put that much because i'll have to pay taxes so 
that's kind of dumb. That's admitting. <laughs> you know, so, so herein lies the herein lies the problem, right? So, like, this is this is my thought process on this. Um, this is the states basically complaining because they feel like they're uh, losing out on a piece of commerce. And um, I'm not going to weigh in on whether I think this is a state or a federal issue. Uh, I have my personal beliefs on that. But um, what I think is really interesting is this is the only time where you as a consumer, a private individual, have to pay taxes on the sale of something um, other than like when you buy a car. Because in my state, you have to pay taxes when when you buy or when you buy or sell a car. So you right. so if I sell something, and that's what I mean, not buying, but selling. So if I sell Let's say my PRS is hanging here right here. I sell it. I'm going to have to pay taxes on the sale of it? Like, what? Um, I'm not exactly. a business. Okay, so exactly. one thing if I'm a business and and or, and or I'm selling something of significant property value that has a title attached to it. Because that's what a title means. That there is actually enough property that the government wants to keep track of where it is. Because there are, there are I mean, there are legitimate issues afoot, right? insurance and all the other things that are associated with it the house you have a deed and you have you know a title and all that stuff too um yep. it's not that different a proposition but this is like this is almost like overreaching so imagine for a moment you go on ebay and you sell a tape measure for like i say tape I measure, there's one on my desk for like 20 bucks this is uncle right. sam basically saying no 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 we get to collect five dollars out of that 20 and I'm just sitting there going, why? You didn't facilitate the transaction in any way. Like, what entitles you to this money? You've already got my money when I when I get a paycheck. You've got yep. my money when I purchase something. Which, by the way, I mean, that's a whole other thing about purchasing in other states that we could that, that's like a whole commentary for another episode. Um, and the rise of the state taxes for buy, buying goods online that you have to pay other state taxes um and uh in my state they expect you to pay a minimum internet sales tax but i have yeah. to but i have to report what i bought online how in god's name am i going to keep track of every single item i buy online last year in 2020 I mean, I probably spent $40,000 on groceries and goods online. You really want me to keep track of everything so that you can ensure that I pay taxes on it. Because that's the thing that bothers me. I pay taxes on that. You, the, right. the, the government is enforcing that. Now I have to pay taxes on it again, or I have to at least explain what I paid taxes on last year. No, exactly. Bullshit. Like this is getting to the, the just have the have the federal. So if you're buying things over state lines, that's no longer a state tax issue, in my opinion. That's an interstate issue, which means that it should be handled by the federal government. That is why we right. have a Department of the Interior. Um, so that's why I'm kind of like, OK, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but you can't get away. You can't get away from it. I'm not going to stop doing business on Reverb. That's absolutely insane. Um, at this point, you know, buy on Craigslist, sell on Reverb. You're not going to make more money on Craigslist than you are on Reverb. I don't care if you're if you're undercutting fees and all that. You're not going to make because there's no pool of people. Like I've tried to sell stuff right. on Craigslist. You know what I get? I get scammers. That's what I get. Right. I get grief. 
I, I, I just won't sell stuff on, on Craigslist anymore. I'm tired of it. Um, in fact, the one transaction I did outside of a service last year was for a camera that I sold on um, Facebook Marketplace. And that transaction was pretty sketchy. Um, and I kind of just don't want to get into that anymore. I would rather go through Reverb where I know I'm protected. Just like selling that cab, I listed it as barely used. And it was barely used. And I told the guy, so it's got probably 10, 12 hours on it. And... Um, and he asked about, you know, how, what, what's the Tolex condition? I said, it's pretty good. I said, there's one mark from where uh, the foot of my amp was sitting on it. Um, but it was in, in the bag. So I'm like, it couldn't have been avoided. And I said, quite frankly, um, if you're going to put anything on top of it, you'll never notice it's there anyway. I sent him, I sent him decent pictures and I sent it to him. But I kind of cringe in the back of my head because I'm like, this guy could reject this. But then I'm also thinking, or the cabinet could get damaged in transit. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Reverb pays for my insurance. Reverb can handle it. I'm not worried about it. Right. I'm not worried That's about right. it. With the amount of sales I got through Reverb, they'll, they'll listen to me when I go and I make the claim and all that, and it's it's not going to be a big deal. Um, That's right. So, again, I don't think this is much of an issue. I honestly don't think people are going to be paying much taxes out of this. Unless you hit that threshold where you had like $20,000 in sales on Reverb, Right. I really don't and think you're, you're going to be you're affected company. by this very much. You're, we're talking twenty or thirty bucks worth of taxes, probably for most folks. Right. Um, even because I think I sold, I think I sold two thousand or three thousand dollars worth of stuff this year. So it's going to be like maybe hundred dollars taxes total. Maybe, yeah, maybe, I maybe. I mean, luckily I I was under four hundred or just about four hundred, so I'm not even going to come up on anybody's radar. Okay, so I don't care. All right. Well, that was a short segment because I don't think uh, I don't think there's a whole lot more to discuss about that. So we will yeah. have time to talk about MIDI at the end of this. Um, yep. all right, I'm going to go ahead and switch over to the next segment, which is the Beatles documentary. It's really just going to be me telling Jim about what it's like and um, sharing some thoughts and kind of getting Jim's thought process and some things. So do you like the Beatles, Jim? Of course I do. Okay. I mean, that to say I like the Beatles, yes, I love the Beatles. All right. All right. So I'm coming at this from a different perspective. I enjoy the Beatles, but I'm not going to pretend they're my favorite band ever. Okay? Right. Um, for I, a good, I appreciate that. For a good period of my youth and a good period of my adult life, I was not a fan of the Beatles because I was just – there's so much hype behind that band. It's a hype machine like no other. And I know that people like it's the best Western classical music or Western music and stuff since classical music and all this. I'm here to tell you that's bullshit. Okay. Go listen to Good Vibrations. Go listen to Beach Boys. Do some analysis. You're going to find out the Beach Boys is like on another level. I do think the Beatles stacks up in a comparable way. And as an adult, I've kind of come around and especially some of the later Beatles stuff like Revolver and, um, uh, Sergeant Peppers and pretty much everything from that era on. Like I, I yeah, actually, I do album. enjoy um, the early stuff is kind of like, well, the early stuff was the pop stuff. Vocal, every, harm, I mean, vocal harmony. Yay. You know, like, okay. Well, when you think about it, so the Beatles, everybody, everybody thinks the Beatles were older guys. John Lennon died at 40. No, they were not. They and were, they broke were up from the Beatles. For 10 years. When they formed as a band, I believe George Harrison was 13 and the, re and the other guys were like 15, yeah, 16. Was, yeah, the guys were young. And they went to Germany, at, you know, as teenagers. Yeah. So to put it in perspective, they had their first big hit single 
by the time they were in their early 20s. I mean, early 20s. Okay. And I don't think I don't think Harrison was of legal drinking age in the United States in some states because back then it was 21 in some states. Yeah, it was no. always, it was 18 in New York. But um, so that's that's what I want to pers- put in perspective. Everybody thinks because of the haircuts and the and the black and white photos and everything else, Harrison looks older. He was a kid. He's yeah, young, he was very he was young. He was the baby of the family. But by the time the band breaks up, he's in his late 20s. Okay. He's right. He's 28, 20, yeah, 28 or 27. Yeah, he's like, he's up there. Um, So what this footage is, it's it's archival footage from a documentary that was never, never finished. That's yep. been sitting in a vault with Apple Productions, which is their production company, for decades. Now. Right. This, this footage was never released for a reason because this footage chronicles the end of the Beatles. It's really the last month, okay, before, you know, things start to go south. And actually, things are going south while you watch it. From moment right. one to the end, there's a lot of tension between these guys. Harrison leaves the Beatles and comes back during this thing, if I remember right. He does. Um, and it's, it's, it's a little complicated because, and a little bit controversial, because the the documentary crew had hidden microphones in certain places yes. and actually recorded a very personal conversation between Paul and John, which I think is one of the most interesting and telling moments of the entire thing. And it's in the first I mean it's in the first episode. Now granted, these are this whole thing is like six hours, six and a half hours worth of worth of material. Um yep. so I, I you know I didn't want to watch it initially because I because I I'd heard the interviews I saw Paul basically commenting and saying, you know, uh, people are saying that this is going to portray me in a negative light. And he said, in retrospect, I think I actually behaved better than I had anticipated this this being. And I don't, you know, people should watch it. He was not upset. He was basically saying, like, it is what it is. This is this is how it happened. Like, now everybody has a record of it. Um, yeah. And uh, it is interesting. There were some things I expected to see because Yoko's in it. Right. And I expected to see more interaction between Yoko and John in the band because everybody's always talked about how Yoko was getting in the middle of everything. I don't think Yoko's influence was like that. I think Yoko's influence was over John specifically. And I think John was calling the shots on whether on his behavior. Okay. Um, So if there is quote unquote brainwashing, which is some people have suggested was going on, um, you wouldn't have seen it anyway because John would have been acting like john and anyway um so what i did think was interesting was um and i've always picked on this because i this is something i've carried with me for a long time um george being the baby of the beatles and a lot of people saying like his guitar playing was not mature when he was in the beatles and like he was not the same quality of player as some of the session players that played on their stuff like Eric clapton um i think at least from my perspective he's the most interesting songwriter of the lot okay because whereas like Paul and um, John could be unconventional, like yep. George was conventional, but when he would write stuff, like he would think outside the confines of rock and roll, like he'd write a waltz or he would write, you know, and he would come in with these like not con- preconceived notions, like a song like um, While My Guitar Gently Weeps or something like that. And you would go wow, there's some chromatic voice leading going in this song. And like, he's not really trying to stick to a one, four, five format in any way. 
um, it's very outside the realm of like what you would t- t- uh, think of traditional pop harmony. And so for me, like I've always looked at hit, uh, George specifically as the the artistic Beatle, whereas Paul, I know I know they're all artists, right? But like I always saw him as the one that was a little bit more introspective and a little bit more self aware of what was going on. Now, if you want to talk about self awareness, Ringo is the one I know the least about. And watching Ringo in this is just simply hysterical because yeah. he doesn't care what's going on. He does not. He's give just off. taking a paycheck. Like as far as he's concerned, he's like, well, they're all fighting. I don't care. Like, it's like, you know, it's a union rate. Like, what are we talking about here? Um, and he's very much like, let's just soldier on. Like, what's the problem? Let's let's just keep going. And, and he's very he's very chipper and he's very happy to sort of push people in the right direction. Um, yep. And I, I actually have a, a newfound respect for him because, like, he's the only guy that outside of the Beatles didn't really have, like, a huge career beyond the Beatles. Um, he did, you know, he's done tours and stuff, but it's all been based around the idea of Beatles music or the fact that he's a former Beatle, which is um, kind of wild when you think about it. But I also think, like, he's the he's the the missing link and the, and the thing that a lot of people don't realize was, like, a driving force behind the band. You know, this drummer who is reminding everybody all the time, basically that this is a business guys and we need to operate it like a business. Well, he Um, was the only one I think at the time that actually had a professional music background. Right. um, Yeah. So I don't know who you played for or whatever, but yeah, yeah. that was actually um, either, either um, had a record contract or whatever. He, He's he is really is or was the business side of the band because um, they had Pete Best before him, right? Yeah, I think was so. I think that was the guy's name. Okay, I I, 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 I um I'm thinking it was Pete Best that was the first drummer. That sounds correct. Um, let's talk about the juggernaut that that shows up in this though. It's, it's that John and Paul, right? And yep. really the separation between those two guys, because I, my understanding is that before um, they took that break and then came back to do this television performance, which ended up becoming this documentary, they were a lot closer than they are in this documentary. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that Paul's married to Linda and that John yep. is now married to Yoko Ono. And they've kind of drifted because they've been doing different things. Uh, I believe, you know, John did the sit the, what the, the sleep in or whatever at that point And, um, had oh, sort yeah, of gone yeah. down the path of being like political, like really politically active, because he's always sort of you know in that vein. And um, whereas I don't think Paul really seemed like I mean, I know he had his philanthropist side, but like he didn't really seem all that interested in anti-war politics and um, the communism stuff. And I sort of felt like there was some tension there, but um, it's not expressed. Like he doesn't explicitly tell John, you know, get your hippie ass out of here. Like it's right. not, it's not that kind of thing, but it, there's definitely some tension between those guys. And I think it's more or less just distance and yeah. the change, the change in their life situations. But it's, it's wild because, and this is really the reason I want to talk about this. I have had so many non-musicians reach out to me and be like, did you watch it? Did you watch it? Did you watch it? And I respond to them and I said, I don't need to watch it because I've been in bands. I've been in bands that have broken up. 
you know, and I've been, I've been in a room writing songs with people like nothing that could be done in this is anything more than pure nostalgia for watching them write songs that we know, um, which, okay. I mean, I guess there's a novelty to that, but yep. for me, like I'm being told by people, this is amazing. I I didn't know people like sat in a room and they just jammed things out until there it's was like, a song. And I'm like, that's yeah, how, how pretty much that? every band writes. <laughs> like they come how to the table with ideas and then everybody sits down and picks and chooses through the ideas and or works through it. Like that's how that works. Yep. And um, when I've told people this, they're kind of like, give me a side eye. Like, so your band writes like this? And yes, actually we do. Yeah. And they're, um, and they're like, we oh, meet in yeah, a studio. Right, like you wrote like the Beatles did. We meet in a studio. Usually we have ideas when we come in and then we jam back and forth and we work through ideas. Yes. We don't play as good as they did at that point. But again, we weren't, you know, we didn't tour incessantly for like five years and then take a hiatus. Like we didn't become professional musicians like they did um, where those guys had been playing in that, that German club, like every night, two nights or two not at two shows a night for like two years, you know, um, yep. you want to know how to get tight. That's how you get tight. Play every single right. day. It, there was a time and, and it wasn't, um, uh, actually, you know, even in my time where, uh, people would play a lunch gig and then turn around and play a dinner gig and then turn around and play a night, an evening gig. And so, it's hard for people to imagine, but there's still folks that do this. I don't know if, if it's as active during the COVID thing, but right up until relatively recently, yeah. at least in, in uh, places like uh, Las Vegas, no, I just gonna say Las Vegas. Why, yeah. You wonder why so many musicians, when my, my, um, uh, one of my close relatives is, is a, um, a professional Elvis impersonator. And when, um, he did the Elvis thing, um, he would literally go and do show after show after show. Mm -hmm. um, so whether he was in Vegas or he was in uh, uh, on the on the riverboats um, in the Mississippi or um, you know uh, whatever uh, different casinos that he played in, you know it's it's nighttime and party time twenty four by seven. So had no idea. <laughs> and. And these were big, elaborate shows were put on constant. I can't imagine being a stage manager at those things. That's all I can say. But, but go ahead. That's but but to to David's point, that the, the um, these musicians are playing all the time. And I don't think that's the case anymore. There's so many people that are that are, especially now with COVID, that are okay. I'm in my own little theater, and these eleven by eleven walls are it. And I don't play outside of them. So many more people that are doing that. Um, or playing with each other once or twice a month. Go ahead. Sorry. So, you know, we all hear the story about them writing the tunes for Yesterday on a Napkin. You know, the, the, the lyrics for Yesterday on a Napkin. And yeah. stuff like that. And, you know, there are some moments in here where it's like, okay, so Paul's literally just humming a melody. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's actually singing a line that, you know, is like immortal that everybody remembers. Right. And, um, of course, you know, bands have those moments and, um, it is, it is fun to watch them wordsmith stuff. Um, yeah. it's also fun to watch them kind of belittle George a little bit and then watch George literally get up and be like, ah, I'm done. I'll, uh, 
I'll send for my things in a few days. Uh, have the boys find another musician from the union and literally just walk out. Um, yep. which, which you see that moment. And it's like, I mean, you guys pissed on him for so long. What did you think was going to happen? Right. You know, and um, he walks away and he leaves for two days. And then there's like two days where they literally don't know what the hell to do. And they're just burning money. I mean, that's what that's what I think a lot of people don't realize. Like they're in this big production facility where they're going to shoot this TV right. show. Yep. Coming and up, Billy with Preston is just sitting there. Yeah, like all these people are just away. sitting around. I mean, there's probably 50 people off camera in the room with them. And they're just sitting there talking and like screwing around. They have an interview with the, the documentary crew and they're just kind of sitting there like, you know, shooting the shit with them. And um, it's very clear that they, they realize like, yeah, the band could be ending right now because if George walks, like we might be in trouble. And that's where the whole like hidden camera footage thing comes in. And it's sort of, um, I get the feeling that like they were so aloof from the financial situation because they had good people managing them. That it was like, this is costing you $100,000 a day in 1970 something. And yep. they just didn't care. It was nope. like, so what? <laughs> you know, like we, we're worth, you know, even back then, hundreds of millions of dollars. They didn't, they didn't yep. give a shit. Like it was like, whatever. So what? Give a turd. Um, and, and, and actually, I love that the fact that they're like a lot more self-aware than, than I, at least I had originally envisioned because they talk about the fact that like, yeah, there's a big problem here. We can't write songs because everybody's ego is too damn big now. And yep. um, like they're they, in that, that where they sit in the cafeteria and they have this conversation. It's very clear that like, I think John even says it like we're done. Like what? Are, yeah. I don't even know why we're continuing to do this. And we're, we're you know, they'd done as much. That's the thing. They had done as much as they could do. They're, it's not a marriage. I mean, it's it's like a marriage, but it's not a marriage. It's a business thing. And the business had, had pre created as much. It's creative product. They they put so they much distance. As much they, as they could. They put so much distance between themselves. And then yeah. the, the fact that they stopped touring is what killed them. Because yeah. at some point... They stopped interacting with each other like brothers and yep. started interacting with each other like business partners. That's right. And um, even Paul says, you know, he's he's basically acting like the king of the Beatles through most of this. And I know people are going to like they're like, oh, Paul's behavior was fine. Paul was definitely the band leader. Like he was making yeah. it very clear. But Paul wasn't always the band leader. And even no. he mentions that like John used to be the band. John. leader, And so because John is very non-confrontational. And my understanding is that John was always pretty non-confrontational when it came to the band. That, like, he could get people to get along. Whereas Paul was just like, no, it's not going to be this way. It has to be this way because we're only going to do this high quality of music. And I think it was almost like Paul was basically setting this precedent like, listen, guys, I don't want to be here unless we're going to be operating at, you know, at, at 10. And we're yep. operating at like seven and a half. And John was like, he was just like, I'll do whatever you guys want. And because that's all that's how he'd always been. And he wasn't prepared for Paul to come back in and be aggressive. And so, right. you know, Paul's getting pissy with George and Ringo. And because these songs are not getting hammered out and they know that there's all this um, pressure on them to get to deliver basically an entirely brand new set of songs in like a week or 10 days. And what ends up happening is George walks 
and then they decide, okay, we need to go, we need to go round up George, and they do it off camera, and they basically go to his house and meet with him, and um, part of the negotiations is. If you come back, we're going to get out of the production facility because it's obviously not conducive to getting the band working. So they go to Apple Studios, okay, which is the which is where they end up shooting the live concert footage on the roof, and that really just happens on a necessity because none of the venues they want they can get, and um, yep. they they record the last record. I mean that's that's a big part of it. Um, yeah, and. Um, What's interesting though is like you, it's not the songwriting. Like I know a lot of people are like, oh, you get to see him make these songs that are you know legendary and whatever. For me, it's the moments where you see like how self aware they actually are. Where like Paul, Paul's got the tabloids, and he's singing tabloids, like singing the lines from the tabloids over songs and stuff. And also, the fact that a lot of this footage is like the worst rehearsal you've ever been to in your life, where people are just playing constantly. Like somebody's trying to have a conversation in the corner, but in the background there's, you know, Ringo and George are doing something or, you know, and you're going, how are they getting anything done? Um, and I think that's part of the, what my takeaway was from this. Was it like, they were just a band like any other band. Um, now it happened to be that they wrote some songs that for an, a generation of people um, were very important. And, and in some cases I would even say, um, it happened to be that for a generation of people, the Beatles were so hyped that they were made important. Because I, I still believe there were other British invasion bands and there were other bands in the United States that had just as good output as what the Beatles were doing, both from an artistic perspective, you know, in, in terms of like what makes good Western music but also from the adventurous perspective of bending different genres and expanding into the, you know, the, um, it really just making rock and roll what it is today, because it's just so, it includes so much stuff. And yep. so the, the, the example I gave earlier, obviously was, you know, go listen to pet sounds, go listen to any of the, um, the beach boy stuff that Brian Wilson, like just went off on because well, again, when it comes to when it comes to the to the Beach Boys, and I'm not I'm not coming to the to the Beatles' defense. They don't need me. No, um, <laughs> there's there's plenty in the catalog that, that they can defend yeah. themselves very well. <laughs> Their fanboys are going to start crying any minute. We're going to have to buy them a box of tissues. Um, the um, if you listen to some of that stuff, some of it is pop crap. Okay, some of it is. You know? I, I think I think the first well, couple records are definitely guilty yeah. of having a lot of filler. And yet then there was the time when they allowed Dennis Wilson to really start becoming the creative force he was. You mean Brian they Wilson? They were all happy to just sit and ride on the backs of Dennis. You mean Brian? I mean, Brian, I'm sorry, you're right. Brian Wilson. Who the hell is Dennis Wilson? I don't know. Anyway, I don't even know if there is a Dennis Wilson. <laughs> Brian Wilson carried those guys. He did. I mean, he literally carried them. And he went right in the head. And yet, Pet Sounds is probably one of the most incredible albums of its time. I would, I you know, and I, I'm not trying to be like, um, I'm not trying to get into like what was wrong with Brian Wilson from a, from a uh, personality perspective. But right. he strikes me as being autistic. 
Right. And that's, I think, they may not have been diagnosing those kind of disorders the right way back then. But right. That he was definitely – he. that man, you, you just listen to this, some of that stuff. And then if you if you have any stomach for it, do some analysis of it because, right. I mean, he's thinking on like a Mozart kind of level, whereas everybody else is thinking on like – you yeah. know, um, uh, w- uh, like a Richie Valens kind of level. Okay, it's right. it's just totally different. Right. Not that we're putting down Richie Valens. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. I'm just saying they're just two totally different approaches. That's and when, right. And when, um, and of course the Beatles did it too because they had like Eleanor Rigsby and stuff like that. But but when um, when Brian Wilson and the Beatles start approaching material this way, it's like everything yeah. changes. Because now, now bands like Black Sabbath can spin out of the Beatles and Jimi right. Hendrix, because because yep. they're, they're really a combination of those two, and um, the, the darker period of of the Beatles with like Sgt. Pepper and stuff like that. Um, you know, think about I Am the Walrus, and yep. think about how that relates to Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath, Oct- right? Octopus's like Gardens. Uh, you know, there's so many things going on there in there. Um, that uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Um, that Andy Timmons does a great version of that song, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. All I can say is that, that there's so many great things. And pop music, honestly, pop music took a huge leap forward when it came to what happened after that. If you look at the pop musicians that came after it, most of them, they, they started using jazz chords and they never would have used jazz chords. They started throwing in things that you know um didn't exist yeah. in popular music they weren't really um, they, there was no progressive uh nature right. to it until those right. bands really broke out and um and and yeah. what happens is when most people think about pop bands because what we're talking about right now you know somebody would turn around and go, well the peach boys that was just you know da, da, get to brown and that come on baby surf up with me but if you listen, not that I'm saying Surf and Safari is some, you know, wonderful, you know, wonderful, monument right. to. Well, uh, you can see where it's starting to go, because if you listen to those harmonies and what those guys are doing just with their voices, there's that's a really um, bare bones track. That's that's what five, six guys, whatever it was in the studio, everybody singing and everybody playing an instrument with the exception of, I think, Mike Love. Um, was Mike Love or whatever his name is? Love was his last name. I think so. Um, playing an instrument and really packing that all into into place. Um, and and the fact of the matter is that that they were able to do that. That that's what people when people think of the Osmonds, they think of the Osmonds that they saw. They don't think of the Osmonds that actually did some going towards heavy metal it, it was a it was the the record company said no you're not going to do that you listen to crazy horse you go or crazy horses and you go um holy crap that was the osmonds no way and and it's like and it's the same thing everybody wanted to do that they, they all wanted to be like believe it or not even Leif garrett was like why am i doing this Super poppy bubblegum bullshit. <laughs> I want to do what Leonard Skinner was doing. I want to do what what Zeppelin at that Every time. Every once in a while, you'll find a project too that like that like the record company didn't promote. That was like yeah. a, a, like some pop artist doing a rock record, and it was like the hell. 
And that's that early Osmonds record. If you find it, there, um, the guy we uh, talked to a while back, Rosano, he goes, I just found this Osmond record. And he goes, it's one of the greatest things I've ever heard. And yeah. Like, I go, yeah, because nobody's heard it. Mm-hmm. It's one of the greatest things it you've promoted ever heard. Because it was outside yeah. their oh. genre and the company was like, we're going to let you do this. But we're not going to, you know, like, this is not going to stand on its own because this is not this is not how we're going to make the most money off of you. Yeah. Um, well, so, think about what uh, what Black Sabbath, you mentioned earlier, what Black Sabbath was doing. You know, Black Sabbath, uh, you know, a, a lot of people don't know this. I know this. We discussed this before. Tony Iommi was in Jethro Tall. Yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot of people don't know Tony Iommi was actually a part of Jethro Tall. Not not just like. I don't think he was on any of the recordings, I, but like he was. He no, was, but uh, he was touring. Yeah. And. And the fact is, Jethro Tull, and, and and people think Jethro Tull, it was like, oh, look at Jethro Tull. There's blah, 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 blah. There, who else is using, you know, uh, a flute? In a, he Deep was like, I, <laughs> yeah, he goes, I don't play guitar and I kind of suck at flute, but I do have some bluesy tones. And that's what he did. Yeah, yeah. Ian Anderson. <laughs> well, it so this is the biggest Beatles connection that you can make between Black Sabbath and the Beatles. But Ozzy says, I yeah. wanted to be... John Lennon. Yeah, a lot of people want it, uh, especially in the UK. He used to wear the glasses. He used to, and he still wears the glasses today. Um, But he he said, I wanted to sing like John Lennon. He said, I realized when I was younger that that ship was never going to, never going to sail. But he's like, that's what kept me motivated um, and continuing to sing and stuff. And Mm -hmm. like, if you really take a step back and think about that proposition and it becomes a very, very clear like how influential they are but here's the issue and i can't i can't say this without uh i can't go through a conversation about the beatles documentary without pointing out one thing um and i people people shoot shoot holes in my boat every time i bring it up but um i think there are other bands that are actually more artistically influential than the beatles but i think the beatles are the mainstream version of right. what people, you know, what expanded rock music. Because I think, I think, you know, like, I think uh, about Beach Boys is, is a classic example. I think, um, I think about the Beatles. I think about later about Black Sabbath. I think about Led Zeppelin. I think about Jeff Beck specifically because of the, the um, Jeff Beck group record, record that was really big. Um, and what I, in a lot of people, it's like, well, these old guys are all based on rhythm and blues. And of course, Beatles were too, right? So, um, but what, what's interesting is, uh, there's one group that gets left out because they were, um, they were sort of like positioned as the anti beetle and that was the yep. Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones. And I think, I, knew it. I think yep. if you're going to point out any band that is more influential than the Beatles in that time period, who would be interesting to see a documentary showing their train. I want to see a documentary like this, but I want to see it showing their transition from That's being, right. um, the pop from band, a, from a blues the, cover band, yeah. yeah. What you would call a blues cover band, quote quote, because basically they were not they were not writing their own material into nope. becoming like their own band, because that's the most interesting period in their history. That's right. I don't care about anything that happened post nineteen seventy three or whatever. Um, yeah, when they did their the whole disco no, thing, and yeah. like even after yeah. that, like um, I was just kind of like, what the hell? But but. Um, when I, because I've listened to, I've listened to probably every Rolling Stones record, which is 
a monumental test. It's like watching every episode of Doctor Who that's that's still yeah. in existence. It's just it's a lot of shit. Okay, there's just a lot it of is. stuff there. There's like eighty albums or something. It's it's just, uh, um, but I would I would listen to it at work or whatever. And like, here's the problem with the Rolling Stones and why people why people don't want to talk about the Rolling Stones being like this. I would say probably seventy to eighty percent of their catalog is garbage, um, hot garbage. Even the stuff that they were writing, like seventy to eighty percent of it's hot garbage. They have like two or three albums that are really, really good. Exile on Main Street. They have um, Let yep. It Be or not Let It Be. Um, what's the Let It Bleed? Which, let it bleed. which I always wondered and if it was a, that was a take on Let It Let It Be, like Let It Bleed, because because yeah. they were positioned as the anti Beatle, like they were very aware. <laughs> You know what yeah. I mean? Like they were very aware that that they were not supposed to be. They were supposed to be like the dirty, ugly you know what's version funny? of the Beatles. It is that Paul McCartney was always pissed off because they were doing things that that the Beatles weren't allowed to do. Because I was just going to say that's basically what it boils down to, right? I mean, yeah, because nobody gave a shit what the Rolling Stones were doing. Nobody gave two flying rats asses what the Rolling Stones were doing. I don't mean the fans. I'm talking about the business folks. They were like, yeah, whatever. They're kind of a, you know, it's, you know, believe it or not, it's just like the Bee Gees. I, 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 you know, I've come back to them before and um, it's funny because they, the Bee Gees themselves, they did back before all that stuff that everybody knows, the, the, uh, the disco shit. Long before that, they were writing songs for themselves and for other artists. They sounded, um, they actually sounded a lot like early Beatles stuff. Yeah. And a mix of the Beach Boys. So, right. it, I mean, if you never heard the early BG sound, like, go check it out. It's, it's worth a listen. Um, yeah, and if you listen to Odessa, which is an album that, that's one of those ones, didn't get promoted. Everybody was like, that's not my BGs, you know? And it was like, yeah, because we took a chance. They did we something. We went out on the limb. Yeah. We did something different. And nobody wanted it. But the thing is that that's because it didn't get promoted back then. AM radio, you know, all that other stuff. And there's so many albums like that that they did. Um, Only, uh, you know, uh, Every Lion-Hearted Man Will Tell You and things like that. That people, I mean, I'm a huge fan. So I bought all that stuff, mostly post. And even then, when I I got it at first, I was like, this sucks. And then I, you know, it was until later when I had a little bit more of a musical ear that I was able to give it a listen. And kind of like after I got to listen to... um, Zappa and who's also influenced by that later stuff. Um, he saw he, himself wildly in competition with the Beatles because yeah, of their because crazy. of their exper- experimental phase. He yeah. was like, I don't think he cared as much, but but the no, press but, definitely like, you know, he's the American American version of you know the Beatles because he's he's yeah. experimenting with all these different weird things that they were also sort of inclined to look at. Yeah, Rush. Definitely came from that. I mean, you can you can hear it in those early albums, uh, for the, all the way up to twenty one twelve. For the people that dispute the Rolling Stone thing that I that I mentioned a minute ago, do you really think you'd have ACDC without the Rolling Stones? Right, exactly. I mean, no way. I, I don't think a band like that would have even tried to exist nope. um, if it was a landscape of purely just the Beatles and the other bands we've mentioned and of course the doors are actually thrown in there because they yeah, were around the course. same time period and um but 
yeah. So I, I just I thought that was interesting. The, the the documentary, if you haven't watched it, Jim, you should watch it. If you've got Disney Plus, yeah, just go ahead I and watch do. it. And, and and even if you don't actively focus on it, you'll pull stuff out of it as you're watching it. It is an interesting testament because it is literally the final days of a band. And you will see things that you relate to and you're like, crap. Like, I remember this band that I was in and that like – it, it was literally the same problems, but it, because of theirs, it's just escalated because it's a different, it's a different right. price bracket. And there's so many people when you think about it, and I think that's another reason that they kind of went, you know, what we're done is they weren't just the four guys as a business. There were there were a lot of I and I want to call they them had leeches. their own prog- production company that was also had They're like a, a charitable. Uh, it became like a char- yep. they had a charitable hand. Yep. Yeah, it was like a whole thing. Yep. And, Apple uh, Records was theirs. There were actually some um, business things that actually ultimately caused the demise of the band, which I don't think are covered in the movie because I haven't actually finished. I'm like right at the end, but um, basically, their management finally kind of goes away, and then they have to hire a new manager. And Paul wants his father in law to be their manager, and yep. John wants this other guy who was managing another band. I want to say there was like the Rolling Stones to manage them. And they kind of went back and forth and they ended up with one as a manager and one as their lawyer. And then eventually it became all of them as the manager and it it like caused this big rift between the two of them. And um, even, even, even uh, there is a comment made in there about George. And um, I think it, I think it's George that says, I don't think it's Ringo who said like, well, Apple productions is basically just, um, just John and and Paul's thing. And we're just like kind of, there like we get yep. we get money from it but it's like we're not involved we don't they run it and we don't you know we don't have a say in it so um well think of it some of my favorite Beatles songs are George Harrison songs oh yeah no like you said my without a doubt some, I mean uh, 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 what's the um, uh, something in the way she moves um, uh, Rick Racky Raccoon um uh, Norwegian Wood. I mean, I'm looking up a list of his songs because I want to read off some of them. I mean, I can't yeah. think of titles right now. So, um, um, ones that he wrote. I, I'm I'm sure of Norwegian Wood. I'm sure of something in the way she moves. I'm sure of while my guitar gently weeps. Did they do I a think... version of of? Uh... My Sweet Lord as as the Beatles? That I don't think I so. Think so. Oh, they, they didn't I appear think it on was something. Written, yeah, I think that was that's just like that weird um uh John Lennon song that everybody sees as a John Lennon solo song, which actually a Beatles song, which I was like I didn't know that. Because it was still part of the Beatles when they did it. It's like Blackbird. Oh yeah. While my guitar Blackbird gently weeps. He's got a up? lot of credit on Let It Be, believe it or not. And I don't know if that's because he's like credited for writing songs that he didn't completely write but um i know he created the solo for let it be that guitar solo is his lucy in the sky with diamonds is also his i thought so i didn't i didn't want to step step out on that because i thought it might have been so so is octopus's garden see i told you that's another one of those ones that i really like and i mentioned that one eleanor rigby so he at least had some lyrical content in these songs oh man um or he's credited as credited as writing, you know, portions of it or whatever. So it's interesting. There, you can Google. You can Google this. It's supposed to come up with a list. 
Um, and it's just interesting that, that like some of these songs that you think that, you know, oh, that's got to be John and Paul. It's not. Um, yep. There's, I, I, I Me Mine is the one I, that I like off of Let It Be. Yep. And yep. Um, that's in here, of course, he wrote that. And they, and you actually see him like bring it to the band. And, and Paul's comment, it just kills me. Think about how passive aggressive this is. Paul says, he hears him sing, singing I Be Mine, right? And then Paul says, is that grammatically correct? Oh my God, you're kidding me. No, I'm not. And and, and I said uh, this to somebody else and they were like, I didn't see that as being aggressive. I do. I like, see are you kidding? Because he's basically saying like, well, I don't like that line because it's not. Yeah. And, and he's questioning it because he doesn't have another reason not to like it. Right. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah. guys, we're a rock band. Does it matter whether it's grammatically correct? Like, and I, I just thinking about some Paul lines when that happened. And I'm just like, I don't know, dude. Like, that's kind of, that's a straw man argument from you, my friend. Yeah, um, but they didn't veto it. It's obviously on the record, right? And they, they work it out and uh, it comes together and it sounds really cool. But um, yeah, I, and that's the point, right? Is like there's all these songs that we don't think about him having like a writer credit on. And yeah. Now, so a lot of people think that like the songs that he wrote are the ones he sang on. Right. Not necessarily. That's no. not necessarily true. And um, he did sing, the sing on quite, he, of these, quite a few of these. But One of the songs he wrote, um, McCartney went back and recorded a bass solo over his guitar solo. Can't remember what one that was. Um, I want to say it was something. I, I get the feeling that he and McCartney did not get along, and yeah. that that there's a scene in there where they're um, and this is the last thing I'm going to share out of the documentary. You got to go. You got to go watch it at this point. There's a scene yeah. in there where Paul and him are having a conversation, and he says, "Well, I'm not Eric Clapton. I'm not Eric." He yeah. doesn't say Eric Clapton. He says, "I'm not Eric." You know, right. if you want Eric, call Eric. I'm George Harrison. And he's like, and he's like, I'm going to play like George Harrison. And I was so like, I, I actually made me feel viscerally proud to hear him say that because I'm like, he always was so, so demure. And that's what a lot of people yeah. said is like, he wasn't imposing, but to see him actually defend himself in the final days of the Beatles like that, when he was getting pushed around, like, Oh, you only get to do two songs a record. You can only sing on one song a record or, you know, whatever rule they were imposing on him at any oh. specific time. And it's like, guys, you're all a band. Just get along. Like, what the hell? Yeah. You're still going to get some money from it. It's not like, you know, I, I get it. They were they were after the publishing rights, and that was the whole thing because that was the problem in Queen as well. But it's like, yep. you're still going to get some money from it. What are you worried about? Just just record the shit and move on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Queen was Queen was like that. The um, so the, for those who don't know, the Beatles entered into an, uh, an agreement very early on, I think right from the beginning, where if John wrote a song, Paul's name was on it. If Paul wrote a song, John's name was on it. That was another thing they wanted to split off because that agreement was stuck as long as they were in the Beatles. I don't know why, but le there was some legality of that. Um, the other part is when you think about it, even those early songs, you know, with Help and um, Yes, uh, uh, hard days night and all that other stuff oh yeah so paul and, paul so, and george um you know because i'm not a downplaying um 
uh, Paul's bass playing, but George, I'm, I'm sorry, George and John are really carrying the melodies of those songs outside of the vocal parts. And there's a lot of intricate stuff going on there. And when you, by the time you get to Ticket to Ride, or you get to uh, Taxman, um, Taxman, Get Back, um, Baby, Won't You Drive My Car, um, it, you know that those songs are taking a, a, a hard right turn, you know. And you're sitting there going, "What the hell is going on here?" Because you're used to a certain chord progression. You go, "I don't know what the hell is going on." And and then George is taking. Um, these riffs we know and love, you know, for every day. I, I, I'd always respected George, and um, yeah. it goes back to Guitar World did an article where they talked about this same thing, and I and I still believe what Guitar, I have World, what, what Guitar World said, the one where he's on the cover. You know the one I'm talking yeah. about when he died, 2001, right when he died. Yeah, yeah and that 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 interview that they did, and then like the the cover story, which is basically like saying like. You know, he was the Beatle that was the one that was responsible for the most artistic stuff. And like, yeah, the dude. silent Beatle. Yeah, he was the silent Beatle. Yeah. And, I mean, and, um, so, yeah, go watch the documentary if you're a guitar player. Also, pay attention to the equipment. It is hilarious oh, yeah. how stripped back the equipment is. They're playing 70 silver face fenders pretty yep. much the entire time. Yep. And um, George, is, the, George um, is on a Les Paul. John's on a casino. Casino. Yep. Um, of course, <laughs> Paul's on his Beatle bass, yep. uh, the violin bass. And then uh, you've got Ringo on Remo kits or something like that. I want to say it was Ringo. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Um, but, the, but, the but the yeah. amplification is like yep. there's not a pedal anywhere because there weren't really pedals back then. There was fuzz yeah. pedals and wah pedals. Yep. And there's like, it's super stripped back. Uh, I highly recommend you 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 pay attention to the equipment, um, Fender PA stuff, which is like, they must have had a deal with Fender at that time, yeah. because they had a deal with Vox. And by the way, Vo that... Vox is the reason that they stopped touring. Everybody says that they stopped touring because they were kind of bored or whatever. But actually, it turns out the real reason they stopped touring is because. They were just sick and tired of having the fans louder than them. And they had the Super Beetle amps made, and they still weren't loud enough. So Vox but, is literally the reason the Beatles stopped touring. Just saying. True. It's true. I mean, think about the screaming that happened at those shows. I mean. Yeah. All right, yeah. we got to move on because yep. we got we to gotta get to... All right, I want to take. Last thing. Can I talk a little bit about MIDI before we do our uh, gig report? Yep. All right. So we're actually going to turn the segment, uh, the episode title indicator on, just because we're going to talk about MIDI. All right. So um, this is not no, this wasn't a planned segment, but I think it's something that we should we should cover. So MIDI for guitar players, um, and this is this is good content. We'll flag this. Somebody will have to to uh, tag this so that people can come back and listen to us talk about this. Um, MIDI for guitar players. There's other people that have covered this in videos. And I think even if you watch those videos, I think people walk away mystified by how MIDI actually works. So think about, think about it from this perspective. You have controllers, which are things that send out messages and receive messages and pass messages along. Okay. And a message can be 
whatever the pedal will accept. So for guitar players or amp for that matter, because there are many MIDI control amps nowadays. So if you have a MIDI enabled device, it's either going to have a TRS plug or it's going to have a DIN plug, which is a five pin um, collared insert. I don't have one sitting here in front of me, or it's going to have a TRS, which is the stereo quarter inch jack. And you're going to plug that in and you're going to connect that to another device. It doesn't have to necessarily be a controller. It could be an HX stomp, something that's capable of sending out messages. And everything that's MIDI is supposed to have a spec sheet. Now, since MIDI as a standard sort of dropped off the face of the earth and because the boutique industry doesn't really conform to standards so much, they have MIDI implementations that aren't necessarily documented. Okay. But back when I was younger, everything had a MIDI spec sheet. And you could flip to that last page of the manual and find out all the commands listed in a, what it was essentially a pre-formatted document they could fill out that had all the information listed in the appropriate places for you to be able to program MIDI. Okay, going back to my Line 6 Flex Tone. That was my first experience with MIDI for guitar was I could use MIDI to control my Line 6 Flex Tone. Um, now, flash forward to what I'm doing right now. And as I was, we're talking about controllers. Now, controller is something that can send, receive, or pass MIDI messages along. Almost all of your devices have some functionality as a controller. If it has any sort of output, then it will usually pass messages, and it will also receive messages, okay? And and uh, it'll pass messages, which is a send functionality. So basically... Yep. When you, um, when you see a MIDI device that has both functions, you're going to see an in and an out. And the in is how messages come in, and the out is how you connect it to how something that, that right. yeah, how that comes out, right? So you're actually creating a MIDI network. So in my scenario right now, I just have two, I have two cables running from my controller into my HX stomp, and then I have a TRS plug that comes out of my controller, which is a separate thing that goes to my, um, my, um, Golden Boy. I want to say Chase Bliss Brothers, but it's not Brothers. It's just another gold pedal. Um, <laughs> so uh, I don't have a Chase Bliss Brothers anymore. Uh, kind of wish I did. Um, anyway, so um, once you wrap your head around that, that, that like things are a network, when I add my ML5 controller, it'll have an in and out on it. So my... So instead of going two cables between my HX stomp and my controller, it'll go output of controller to HX stomp input, output of HX stomp into ML5 input, output yep. of ML5 back into the um, the uh, controller. I actually yep. don't have to do it that way. You could have right. it just as a like a daisy chain but because i want to have two-way communication with my hx stomp i really need to make a circle okay so that everything gets passed between all the devices now here's where it gets funny so everybody thinks like um when they start looking at midi midi stuff and they start like reading about it there are two types of messages you're going to be sending to your to your guitar gear there's program changes and there's yep. um continuous controller messages it's, it, it's channel specific. Everything's channel specific. Okay, I think yep. it's I think it's continuous controller. It's been a long time. I just I just call them CC now. 
but basically right. it's it's a controller message and, that and usually is, that's what they'll call they'll say cc right in the uh... so what the difference between pc and cc is generally your devices are going to have banks of presets and it's program change is usually a change in preset okay and it's it's a number from 0 to 127 and then i believe there are bank messages as well but almost nothing i've used has used that in the guitar world um you'll find that in sense that have thousands of sounds and you need to be able to switch between these different banks of midi sounds and um it's a way to distinguish so it's uh it's part of the pc the way the pc changes work okay so in my in my situation i i have when i'm working and doing midi programming i'll have three manuals open i'll have a manual for each device okay i'll have it flipped to the to the midi instructions they're in the manual so that I know what the numbers are that correspond to the things I want to do. So like um, for my PC messages, I know what those correspond to preset wise. So the Helix is kind of weird because they have 1A, 1B, 1C, which corresponds to 0, 1, and 2, okay, in that order. And so you have to sort of be aware that you're going to increment up or you're going to decrement down 1. It's going to take you up 1A, 1B, 1C to to um to a right that would be four <laughs> okay so you got to kind of be aware that the, that that's the way that works and if you just do this stuff out of the box a lot of times especially with line six um it will decrement everything on your board it'll send out a change message every time that it that you change something on it so usually in your setup somewhere on your device there's a way to turn that off so that's what you're going to want your midi manual for too is because you want your controller theoretically or some device you designate as your as your master is going to be sending out the pc messages to other devices now you might be asking yourself if there's really only two types of devices um and a pc message is a, literally just a pc message how do you distinguish between devices and it's what there's a reason right. i started with pc right you distinguish between those devices by um using a channel okay and every device has a way for you to set a channel uh, you'll see devices talk about omni-channel. It means it, it communicates in all channels. Um, but in general, you're going to want everything to be on a different channel. So my um, Golden Boy is on channel 2. My HX Stomp is on channel 1. And um, even though I don't actually, I'm not really sending messages to the, um, the controller, it's channel 0. Okay. And then when I add an ML5, it'll be channel 3. And then I'm going to add my amp channel switcher. It's going to be channel 4. And so basically, um, when I make a preset in the controller, I map the buttons to the specific messages I want to send out to each device to make everything work right. Okay. And that can be as simple as like in the Helix switching snapshots or even just saying, um, I have this, this, you know, 1A preset that I want you to recall. Um, so it's not super complicated. I mean, it's kind of paint by numbers. You just got to look at the numbers and then you can figure out how to how to code things. It requires a little bit of thought. It takes a little bit of time. Actually, I find that if you do a lot of prep work, it can go really fast. So if you have all the, the messages written down that you're going to need um, prior to making a patch, you can have all that done like ahead of time and then just like program it real fast and you're like 90% of the way there. Um, so... The, the, where it gets weird is there's no standardization for programming in these devices so every device is different 
um the way they handle how many how many messages they can send out is different what is interesting is that the continuous controllers there's only 127 128 continuous controllers zero through 127 right. zero through 127 um that they can use to assign as a function and uh there are devices that use like all of them um for, fortunately none of the ones i have are like that kind of device but um i mean if you're if you're curious you have you have that that's got 10 presets on it right and i think a lot of people immediately go well it should have 128 presets everything should have 128 presets but think about this perspective midi if you have the right controller should allow you to preset and recall presets that you use in two places so theoretically like the ml5 right has fewer presets than the hx stomp does and I was kind of concerned about that at first because, like, well, they won't match up. But then I got to thinking about it. I was like, do they even want them to match up? Because really, it's five by five pedals, right? Which yep. means 25 combinations, I think. No, it's, it's more than 25. It's a lot, of co- a lot of different combinations. But I might only use 25 combinations. So really, I need 25 banks or 25 uh, presets. Right. Or in exactly. reality, I probably need like two or three presets. And quite frankly, I don't even need a preset at all because it's all going to be done by the controller. So I would literally just be sending open this loop, open this loop, and open this loop, and I hit this button. Yep. It's not. There's no real reason to go beyond, uh, beyond that kind of, um, beyond that kind of thing for the way that I'm programming my stuff. Now, this can be incredibly flexible, and opens up a, a multitude of things. Even in your case, Jim, depending on what messages that that pedal would receive. You may not even need presets because the morning star, for example, might be your presets because you're right. just sending CC messages anyway. Yeah, um, this thing will take 127 words. And you're talking about using, um, you're talking well, about zero through 100. Yeah, but you're talking about using the Kemper to send data to it. And I think that's possible. Um, I just don't know exactly what the Kemper, I never really looked at the MIDI implementation of the Kemper because it was not something I was going to use. Um, but I've also had a couple people like, why would you go through all this trouble to build a board that's MIDI controllable? And number one, I want the best of both worlds. And I got to th- I got to thinking about this um, conversation a little bit today, actually, because I was I was talking to somebody today about it. And um, the conversation was like, why would you want to do this? It's complicated. And it's like, oh well, yeah, it is definitely complicated. Trust me, when it takes three hours to set up three sounds, yeah, it's complicated. Um, but here's the reality. It's repeatable. It's easy yep. for me to get to sounds that are kind of vastly different from one another. And the yep. other thing is the way I set things up, I'm going to use analog drive pedals. So if I need to reach down and turn a knob, I don't have to fuss with menus. And I can have a basic preset in the HX stop, which is just literally two loops and maybe a delay and a yep. reverb. And for when I'm jamming, like that's all I need. Um, yeah. And, and and I don't have to make it all complicated, have verse, chorus, bridge on my Morningstar. So it's kind of like the, the thought process here is I want the best of both worlds. I want to be able to go verse, chorus, bridge on, a, on right. a switcher and then flip over. And uh, on the um, HX stomp, you know, right. first chorus, bridge, and then flip over and then have that basic HX stomp patch to do certain things and then have right. another bank of presets that allow me to have direct sound so that I get my board becomes extremely flexible. Um, and it's just a professional tool. Like, that's the way I'm looking yeah. at it. It's just a tool. 
Um, I could even use my MIDI controller. If you want to get real fancy, you could use um, MIDI controller out into your audio interface for recording, and you can have all your recording buttons mapped to an interface on the floor. So yeah. you could literally hit play record on the floor, tap tempo on the floor, like all these different things that you have available to you. Um, so that's why I'm like, people have been asking, why would you do such a thing? And uh, I think it's interesting. I think it's worth, I think it's worth at least exploring. It is scary to a lot of people because it's not something you have total control of on stage. Right. Um, you have to sort of have your shit worked out, go through a rehearsal with it before you actually yeah. go through the live show, make sure everything's working and have a backup plan. And my backup yep. plan is a second board. So, yeah. or, or to be able to bypass, basically just have a patch that's like open bypass and just use the board like a static board. Um, and it boosts yep. the reverb on my amp and forget about reverb and delay on the stop. Um, yeah. And, and that's, you know, if you go, if you come at it from that approach, I think you'll find out that this actually functions really well. I've done it before. I had the ES8 board that had dozens of pedals on it. Um, and it worked pretty well. I think this is going to be a iteration that's going to be similar. I'm simplifying the crap out of what I used to do. Um, and I hope that it helps me get some more gigs. And that's really yeah. the best we can hope for for anything. Um, so anyway, that's my that's my MIDI rant. Jim, do you have anything? Um, to add? Yeah, talk yeah. About. I mean, I I got in, I got introduced to MIDI in 1983. It's been around pretty much uh, my whole life. Yeah, 82, 83. It's been around a long time. Um, the first thing I ever met was a keyboard. There was a guy doing Cars tong songs. Mm -hmm. This might have been 80. Um, and I know the Cars used MIDI. And he was able to use MIDI. Now, here's 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 some dating stuff for you, or dated stuff for you. Um, he was using MIDI, and he had a floppy disk. It was like a 5-inch or 8-inch. It's one of those big floppies. Remember those big ones? Yeah. He shoved in there. Had all of, like, some K <laughs> date on it. MIDI is not big, folks. MIDI does not take up a lot of data room. Um, it was no, it built, was designed to be small. Um, right. It was designed to be um, very compact. Um, and the words that you use in MIDI, and I say words because that's what they are um, referred to, are, are very small. They can be used for anything. The word Bob in one device can be can be different from another device from another device but the but the point is that midi um for these this keyboards i want to say it was korg if i'm remembering correctly it could be any of them i mean they all they all yeah. ratified the standard it was so yeah, it was either korg or yamaha that that these guys were using um which were the keyboards of the time but you would have racks these guys had three four keyboards um, yeah, before, before that, people would haul like every keyboard they own to a gig. Um, yeah. And now you see a guy with one. And it's yeah. not because that one is super versatile. It's because in some cases they can have a tone generator underneath it or they can yep. have a tone generator in a rack. You can also uh, take a lot of these, like the big 88 key um, uh, Juno mini yeah. keyboards. And Controllers. they're all they are doing. Yeah. They're, this part of it is a piano, but this part of it is organ. And they're running it into a horn. laptop. 
Yeah. Yeah. And um, you could have uh, clock cycles that click off when it changes. So that part that you were playing now becomes a guitar, then it switches over. You take that song, uh, I think one of the earliest implements, implementations of MIDI was the song um, uh, Gary Wright, Dreamweaver. Yeah, I'm sure there was, there I, was some use I in believe that. he was using MIDI. He used it either when he used, when he did that song or when he was, I know for a fact when he was playing it live, he was using MIDI. Um, at, at the point that I saw him. So that might have been around. I can't remember how long MIDI. Can you look that up? 1983, I believe, but I'll look it up. Okay, there you go. Yeah. So he was touring with it when I saw him. Um, now you're talking about, you keep you keep talking about word length. And I think that's, yeah. I think that's a little bit, um, I think it's a little bit, uh, I don't want to say like disingenuous. I think most people yeah. are never actually going to think about it in that perspective. Because you never get down to deal with the actual zeros and ones of it because it's, I mean, it's basically. Unless you're an engineer in that. that, Even, even engineers, like when I'm, when I'm sequencing, unless you're a software engineer, you don't care about the ones and zeros. Like if you're a a studio engineer, then you might look at it differently. But so it was ratified. Um, No. So it originated in 1981. It was ratified in 1983. That makes sense. That makes okay. sense. And then in 2016 or 2017, they proposed MIDI 2. And MIDI 2 is ratified, I think, in 2020. So yeah. we're going to see MIDI 2 devices. And actually, I think Yamaha has already come out with one. Um, I can believe that. Juno's probably coming up with one. I don't know what kind of usage that's going to be. Well, I know there's a wireless MIDI standard as part of that. Um, and they're going to change the plug type. I think they're going to carry over a variety of plugs, but USB-C will be the, the, the predominant one. Um, yeah, because they're wanting to get away from if you've seen a MIDI plug. I mean, literally companies are making their bread and oh. butter off of making small MIDI plugs because they're freaking huge. Um, for whatever the reason, the housings up I have are a MIDI, massive. Hold on. I have a MIDI one right here. <coughs> they're not designed for use on your pedal board. Let's put it that way. They're not. They're kind of a pain in the ass. Well, there's a cottage industry for small, small cables. So like these, um, here's a. This is a uh, MIDI hammer cable from One Control, and I'll pop one out of the box here. This is a full. This is a MIDI cable. This is a small. This is a small MIDI cable. Yep, that's a small one. That's a small one. It's huge. This is your typical Roland MIDI cable. It's huge. It's this big. Even if, yeah, even if, and to put that perspective, let me get uh, let me get something that people can see the the. So here's a guitar pick. Right. right, and yeah, they're about a quarter inch long. Yeah, and so uh, now I also have right here. I just happen to have it here. Box for uh, and my Bigsby came in, and in here they included one. Now you'll say, "Oh well, my my device has a mini cable that's only quarter inch." Yeah, no, well, guess what? That's, you still have this big ass thing. <laughs> you can have an adapt. You can have an adapter, or you and in some cases the controller will allow you to do it. It's like the uh, Morningstar yeah. has two uh, two TRS Omni plugs, which could be used yep. as either inputs or outputs, um, yep. which is nice. Um, so they're so are they because I, I'm familiar with how this are they serializing the 
Um, so are they are they taking a parallel were parallel um, data and serializing it through that TRS? No. Is that how it works? So here, so here's the deal. Uh, it's a five it's a five pin DIN, but there yeah. only three only three of the plugs are actually used. Three of the pins. Oh, jeez. Um, because two of the outside pins are used for power, and nothing that is in the guitar world is used for power. Some oh. people just started doing MIDI implementations on cheap on cheaper hardware. This is basically what happened. Um, so that's a little that's a little I, known thing. I actually went on this big quest to figure all that out because uh, I was like, people were arguing with me about this pedal is gen this pedal pedal is MIDI. No, it communicates it communicates using the MIDI language. But it is not MIDI because they cannot get a ratification use uh, on MIDI 1.0 using a quarter-inch implementation That's because right. that it does not meet the MIDI standard. It does, that not. does not meet the MIDI standard. It has to be a DIN plug um, with five. I pins. did not know that there were two. I didn't know they were using power. That doesn't make any sense. Well, MIDI no. So MIDI MIDI is like bus power, and there were devices that use it, but it's mostly in the keyboard world. Um, yeah, I was gonna say it has to be in the keyboard. So. I mean, I think it's kind of cool. Like, I, it, it would be really cool if every pedal on your board had a MIDI jack and, like, you could power them up all using one pedal. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so... Uh, it'd be granted. like POE. Well, and the nice part about that is, and this is why it'll never happen, too, is because everybody would have to conform to the same power requirements. That's why you'll never see it. Because these boutique engineers are not really engineers a lot of the time. Uh, shock and disbelief, many of these people are circuit vendors. They don't really actually understand what it is they're doing. Yeah, they don't know what... Yeah, they don't know what it is they're doing. They just know they're doing it. And there's nothing wrong with I mean, that. I mean, I bought. No, I'm no. sure, I'm buying circuit bend pedals here and there. And but um, everybody, you know, anybody can use a breadboard and put wire into the some. You know, you know, it's like playing Battleship with electronic components. I mean, really. I mean, and there are people um, out there that do know this shit really well, like John Brown. Yeah. And yeah, um, Josh Scott. Josh Scott's a great example. He's a guy that yep. that is an actual engineer at this point. He, yeah, and even he probably and even knows way more than he Brian wants Wampler, who said that at the beginning he yeah. wasn't an engineer, like he knows probably more than most engineers do. And of course, there's always yeah. Robert Keeley, who is who started out as an electronics engineer. Um, yep. So I mean, they're definitely out there, but you will you will also find people like Death by Audio, who are like, I just put shit on a board to see what happens. Now I'm sure the guy that runs yeah. Death by Audio is not doing that now. I think he's been in the business yeah. long enough that he sort of has an inclination of how things work. But in the beginning, there was a lot of circuit bending, and uh, yep. that was part of what motivated some of these things. Like, oh well, we don't have to worry about MIDI spec. Like, like we honestly, can just run I think it that's where pens. we all start. Anybody that got into electronics, I mean, my first my first foray into electronics was when I was a kid, and I found a broken radio, and I wanted to fix it. Dude, I mean. I, I mean, I Everybody. see people do things every once in a while, like especially in these forums, um, where people are like, "I wonder if I can use Ethernet cable to pass guitar signal." And so, well, you can, you shouldn't. <laughs> it's going to sound like yeah, ass, but say, but yeah, it's going to sound like because that that uh, braided uh, cable or that um, I'm sorry, that uh, twisted pair is not exactly the best thing you can use. To do right, that. it's not exactly a high fidelity. Let's put it that way. No, it's All made right. for much higher frequencies than what you're going to put out of that guitar. Uh, all right, we're going to switch topics. So we're, we're talking about uh, Gig Report. Um, I have, I actually did play between last episode and this episode. I did an open jam, and it was okay. It was just a good time. Um, and uh, I don't have a whole lot to comment on that. But I do have a show coming up on December 23rd with Old Stumpy at Bourbon on Division here in Chicago. 
uh, I am doing a shameless plug. Uh, yeah. The tickets are for sale. It is a COVID-friendly um, venue, so you're going to have to have uh, proof of vaccination and or negative COVID test within 72 hours of arrival. Um, so just be aware, like, if you if you decide you want to come out and see me play, uh, come introduce yourself and uh, watch me play, like, basically in the band that, that uh, it's fun to play in, but I'm not really, like, putting a lot of time investment into. Um, definitely uh, come out and uh, hang out with me. And because you know, you'll be COVID friendly, so I mean, I'll have to wear a mask, but uh, probably until I perform. But it's COVID friendly, right? Like, at least yeah. I know that you know, chances are everybody's gonna be vaccinated there, uh, or, yeah, exactly. have a, or have a fake vaccine card, one or the other. Um, <laughs> I'm not even gonna go down that road. There was a big row behind the scenes before this show, which is kind of funny, uh, regarding some of this stuff. And uh, Jim, I, I, I have this is an appropriate place for me to share with our listeners. I actually lost somebody in, in my um, extended family, uh, two people actually uh, to COVID three. Well, two people and a friend to COVID in literally the last two weeks. So, you know, I, I, I have, I have been offended by band members saying, you know, this COVID thing is over and which have you seen the numbers? Um, it's not over in my state. Uh, we're at 8,000 cases a day right now. Um, and also just downplaying it like for this kind of stuff. And I just kind of like, guys, don't, don't downplay it. Like let people have their own opinions on it, but take care of yourself, please. Like in whatever way that means for you, take care of yourself, make sure you're, you're being smart. And I, I right. had somebody actually say something to the equivalent of, uh, I guess in Australia, they have camps for quarantine. Um, yep. and they were saying like, we're going to have quarantine FEMA camps here in the United States and that in calling people COVID idiots for getting vaccinated. And this is this person's a band member. And I, I said, I actually was not going to play the show over it. I was like, you know what? I don't want to be around you. And, uh, quite frankly, it's, I'm, I'm likely to hit you for being disrespectful to people who've lost people. And for and for making out like this is something that we should make a political stand on. Um, this is we're talking about people's lives, and I don't think this is a place for you to judge whether or not their that your freedom is the same as their freedom, and whether they would make the same decisions uh, you would. Um, I think I think the three people I know that have passed in the last week probably would have made different decisions given the outcome, and. Um, given somebody rational in their lives being there to tell them you shouldn't have done that. Um, but you know, it is what it is. And I, um, I'm moving forward. I'm moving through it. I made a, I made a post on Facebook and basically said, if you're going to share anti COVID propaganda on my page, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna delete you off my, my, uh, Facebook. I don't have time for you anymore. I just don't. Uh, you're wasting my time. You're you're making me feel um, more anxiety than I need to. And quite frankly, you're in the you're in the vast majority of people in this country, uh, or in that vast minority of people in this country. I think there's a lot fewer of you than there are people like me who are kind of just sitting in the middle of this and trying to do our best. Um, so that being said, uh, I, I we actually had a band member quit. Uh, not the same person. And I'm wondering if it's related. And I know there was some conversation between those two people at some point. 
and uh, I'm doing this. I don't know how long we last after this. I don't know whether I'm going to continue to do this gig um, after this. I, I suspect that um, my time is about to get busy with this other gig I got. I'm, I'm working on and that this will not become the priority for me. So there might be some conflicts and I might not be able to make some shows and it might be my exit for the band. That said, I'm going to get paid. So I'm going to go do it one more time. And uh, I have been told that uh, people have suggested they're not going to make their political stances known to me in person. And that's good because I don't want to have to knock your teeth out. So (laughs) I said that with a big smile on my face. I'm not a violent person. I make jokes about being violent. Um, I have not hit anybody that I didn't that didn't deserve it in many, <laughs> many, many years. Actually, since high school, I haven't been in a fist fight with anybody since high school. I don't think that might not be true. No, I haven't been in a fist fight, and I can't tell you how long. That might not be true, but uh, yeah, I, I just uh, you know, be respectful of people's opinions and, and attitudes, and understand that people have died from this. Like a lot of people have died from this. And the chances are when you post something like on your social media, you've got a few friends that have lost some people that are like, what the, you know, what the hell? Uh, Why should you get to dictate what I do any more than I dictate what you do? Um, So, and uh, yeah, just continue to navigate some of these issues. And I, by the way, I want to share one of the people that that died is, you know, was in their twenties. So, um, yeah. I think a lot of people think that yeah. this Wasn't is one of those old, a lot yeah. of people think that when you hear that, like it's all old people and it's like, <sighs> it depends. Some people have health problems in their twenties. This person, this person had uh, liver problems and um, some people, especially at that age, you don't know you have health problems until it's too late. You know, so yeah, those are things that happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I I was one of them. I honestly, I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease. I couldn't walk. There was like a one year period where I was like laid up most of the time. And I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease. It was causing my legs to, my knees to swell up like grapefruit. And, um, it was, I got, I got diagnosed, right. And I got back on my feet, but like, I think about like, what, what if that had happened during COVID and I'd gotten sick and my immune system was way overactive. I could have killed me. Exactly. So, anyway, Jim, you got stuff coming up. Let's talk. Yeah, so I've got a gig coming up. Uh, we wor- we worked on some Christmas songs uh, that uh, actually today. Oh shit! I probably should work on some Christmas songs too to prep up. So we um, we prepped up "Blue Blue Christmas" by Elvis, which was um, not hard, but more complicated than I thought it would be. Yeah, um, and. There's a couple of chord changes in there that are chord changes, but not chord changes. They're, it's just voicing changes. Yeah, it's like um, going from a, from a third inversion to a first inversion. Right, to a first inversion, um, dropping to a seventh, but, you know, that kind of thing. And um, and there's some walk-downs in it, which I wasn't familiar with. And then there's places where you think the walk-down's coming, but it's not, that type of thing. Um, and then... Uh, Another surprisingly mo- um, more difficult. Usually these these Christmas songs are sing song, you know. Uh, but we're doing um, that one. We're doing uh, the Eagles um, come home for Christmas. Please come home for Christmas. Another one that has a lot of um, major major seven movements and inversions, seven inversions, 
here on the third inversion. Um, and uh, what else was there? Oh, and uh, another one that I've I've known for decades. I mean, I, since I was a little kid. Um, uh, Brenda, Brenda Lee. Um, that uh, I thought, wow, that's a weird one. Let me see. Uh, I got it right here. <clears throat> I was like, wow, that's more complicated than I thought it would be. Uh, right here. Um, rocking around the Christmas tree. Rocking around the Christmas tree. Have a happy holiday. And I was like, oh, shit. I'm going to have to learn some jazz chords here. <laughs> that was funny. But that, it's funny because it's called Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, but it's like all jazz shit. Yeah, it's all I, jazz I know, I know it is. I mean, I, I've, <laughs> I've looked at that song before and I'm like, really? Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's funny. And there's a lot of chromatic yeah, movement. And yeah. It, it, so not diatonic. I would highly recommend if you're interested in Christmas songs, go listen to uh, Ho Ho Hoey. If you've never listened to Ho Ho Hoey, uh, yeah, that is really the, literally the reason that Gary Hoey is famous. Um, cause I mean, he's done a lot of other stuff and he's a great guitar player, but, but he did this Christmas thing that's like ongoing and very popular amongst guitar players for a reason. Well, you know, I wanted to do some Trans-Siberian Orchestra. <laughs> no, really? Don't ever do that rock, again. <laughs> rock up, Carol. It's bells. like it's like listen to it's like listen to a fifty year old Muppet try to do metal. It's like what the I hell? I know it didn't sound good out of my mouth. I'm just you know saying. the you know the old guy Muppets like the the uh, the critics. Oh yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. that was like. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I am. I'm one of those old Muppets that um, is always critiquing you. Hey, you know what? I like the ending of that song. <laughs> what part? The end, you know, when you stop playing. <laughs> That's wow. Next thing you know, you're going to be telling me that mistakes are free. <laughs> yeah. I'll pay you back. We do this all the time when uh, a friend of mine, when we do open mic, because we often get up on there together. And um, uh, we'll do, um, uh, we'll, we'll say, if you didn't like that, we'll give you all your money back. <laughs> He obviously didn't get the pay to get in. Yeah. Um, wait, we go to open mics and have a good time at them? I'm not going there. I'm not going there. You know exactly where that conversation would go, and I'm not going there. <laughs> Jay, if you're yeah, listening, movie. you know. Oh, I had to listen to you. you know. We had to read your comment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> anyway. All right. All right, brother. Uh, it's been a good, good episode. I've been doing I've been Jim. And tonight we've been practical guitars. It's our Christmas episode. Oh, we do this again? People.